a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine, Episode 80, part of Ben's Marvel Cosmic Comics series, looking at the Marvel-licensed sci-fi and fantasy comics cover date May 1978. Featuring Star Wars number 11, Godzilla number 10, Human Fly number 9, Man from Atlantis number 4, John Carter, World of Mars number 12, and Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man, both issue number 2. Hello, time travelers. It's me, Ben. Ben Avery, and I have to say I'm excited about some Star Wars. Uh, it's because of this issue that I'm going to be talking about in this episode? No. No, it's not. Is it possibly a, a movie? Episode 7 that just came out? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, episode 7, I have seen it. I have recorded a couple different podcasts about it. You can find those over at, at Strangers and aliens.com uh but that movie has got me excited about well just got me excited about a lot of different things to be honest and one of them is star wars comics and the other one is just science fiction in, in general i think uh star wars it has that effect star wars has that effect on not just me but on, on i I think a lot of people have that feeling where they see a, a fun adventure in something like star wars or really any of the Star Wars movies that, that people like. And it just wants, um, it creates a desire to, to want more. And yeah, so I'm, I'm just excited about you know, some good science fiction movies. And I'm not sure what I'm going to actually try and find or, or, or dive into right now. Uh, other than, well, I'm planning on diving into 1978. I, I can tell that right now. Um, I've done so. I've gone back in time. This episode, we are beginning the cover date coverage of May 1978. Uh, these issues all came out in February of 1978 that I'll be covering in, in the next few few sections here. Uh, for today, we'll be looking at uh, Star Wars number 11, which uh, hit shelves uh, February 7th, 1978. In upcoming segments, though, we will be talking about Godzilla number 10 which has a story called Godzilla versus Yetrigar and Human Fly number 9 which has a story called And Daredevil Makes 3 Man from Atlantis number 4 a story called The Killer Spores which I kind of laughed at uh when I read the blurb for what was coming next when I read the last issue since then I've discovered that actually it's based on a script from the TV show we'll get to that uh, John Carter, issue number 12, City of Skulls. And then we'll also be looking at uh, Double Dinosaur number two and Machine Man number two when we get to the, the Ben's Bullpen Bulletin segment. For now, though, this segment that we're about to jump into, it, we're going to be talking about Star Wars number 11, a story uh, that promises to, to give us some information about Luke Skywalker and... I, I'm going to avoid 
spoilers for The Force Awakens. I know not everyone has seen it. Uh, I mean, I don't even know how many people even listen to this series that I'm doing here. Uh, and so maybe there's three people out there who listen. And and if, if, if only three people listen and only one of those three people has not seen The Force Awakens yet, uh, I'm just going to say go see it. If you're listening to a podcast like this, you're either going to enjoy it or you're going to hate it and enjoy ranting about it. Um, that's that's all I'll say. There were some things in this issue, some some correlations I could draw to The Force Awakens. I'm going to work really hard to make sure that I don't. So I'm not going to spoil The Force Awakens. I am, however, going to spoil a 40-year-old comic. So keep that in mind. I am going to spoil where Luke is in this comic. Uh, well, we'll get to it. I, I need, I'm going to play the sounder, and, and then we'll go ahead and get started with our conversation about Star Wars issue number 11. So last issue, we didn't know what had happened to, to Luke. He was off looking for a new rebel base. He sent a cryptic message that was cut off. All we knew is he was in danger. What kind of danger? We don't know. And this issue promises to let us know. Uh, let's see. Where should we start? Let's start with our credits. I, I usually forget that and, and then end up squeezing it in in an unnatural place. This feels like a natural place. Star Wars issue number 11 was written by Archie Goodwin. The penciler is Carmine Infantino. The inker is Terry Austin. The letterer is Joseph Rosen. The colorist is Janice Cohen. And our cover is a pretty dynamic looking cover. Uh, there is Luke Skywalker, and he's on some sort of metal raft. There's a huge wave. He's yelling at C-3PO and R2-D2 who are trying to stay on this metal raft. And he says, R2, 3PO, into the ship. My blaster is not stopping this thing. But Master Luke, the ship is sinking. And what is this thing that Luke can't stop? A huge, giant, dragon-like serpent that has giant sharp teeth and it says this issue the fate of luke skywalker and so i can tell you what i'm expecting from this issue i will also tell you that i'm not going to get exactly what i'm expecting out of this issue uh we'll get to it so this issue star wars number 11 is called star search <laughs> the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 1986 competition of Star Search. With your host, Ed McMahon. And special guest tonight from Hill Street Blues, Michael Warren. And last week's returning Star Search champion, female vocalist Teresa Henderson. TV spokesman champion, Karen Marie Thomas. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just... When I read... When I read that, I mean... Uh, that's that's just the first place my brain went. I mean, I don't know how many Saturday afternoons I wasted watching this stupid show. Now, granted, there were a number of people who had uh, careers that, that came out of Star Search. Britney Spears is one. Uh, Kevin James is another. Um, Garrett's whatever his name is from uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, these are people that they went on Star Search because they were in Hollywood, the entertainment capital of the world. 
This issue of Star Wars, of course, has nothing to do with that, but I, I just had to go there because that's just where my brain took me. I'm sorry. It's written by Archie Goodwin and penciled by Carmine Infantino. Now, these two people are going to be spending a lot of time on Star Wars. We're going to be talking about their work quite a bit in upcoming episodes of Marvel's Cosmic Comics. Why? Well, Archie Goodwin, I mean, both, well, both of these guys, both of them are huge, huge luminaries in the comics industry. Uh, they both have very long careers and very uh, popular runs on, on different things. This run that we're starting right now, my understanding is it is a popular run. Um, Carmen Infantino, he, he has this enormous run on The Flash. Um, pun not intended, but I will absolutely uh, take credit for it. Uh, so they, they both are important uh, people of Marvel's history and, and not just Marvel, um, but, but other companies as well. And so this is a, a big moment, though, in the Star Wars comic book uh, run in that, you know, we, we lost Roy Thomas. We had Roy Thomas um, with doing the outline for the last issue, but then Don Glutt did the script for it. But now we're back to what what really is a regular team, uh, and well, we'll we'll get into whether or not it's it's a good team. But this is just their first issue together, and that makes this a momentous occasion because they did have a lot of work together after this. And so, what do we get? Well, let's talk about the story a little bit. The cover shows Luke fighting that dragon, but we don't open with Luke fighting that dragon. Instead, we open with uh, Han Solo and, and Chewie leaving the planet from last issue. And they talk together and flashback to that previous story arc as they blast into hyperspace toward Yavin base. They come out of hyperspace, though. They're, they're, they want to come out close, but not too close to Yavin to avoid possible Imperial ships that might be patrolling. Uh, they just happen to come out of hyperspace right next to a pirate ship. Now, this pirate ship, we've seen it before. It's Crimson Jack. And I don't know exactly how this works because my understanding is hyperspace is faster than light. And so somehow, though, Crimson Jack was able to be sitting right exactly where the Millennium Falcon is going to come out of hyperspace. They were able to do this because they are tracking the Millennium Falcon. Now, like I said, I don't exactly know how this works. If they have placed a tracer on the ship, it seems like they wouldn't know where it's coming out of hyperspace until after it's come out of hyperspace, not before. You can't just plant yourself in the path of this thing. I'm not sure exactly the science of how this works, but you know what? Star Wars isn't a science fiction. It's, it's science fantasy if we really get down to it. So you got to go with it or you don't. And let's just go with it. So they come out of hyperspace right next to Crimson Jack's ship. They're taken on to Crimson Jack's ship. They banter with Crimson Jack. By they, of course, I mean Han Solo. They bluff. There's a little bit of a battle going on. And Jack realizes he's not going to get any more money out of the Millennium Falcon. That money that they, they got from the planet is not much at all. Uh, the treasure that they had from before, well, that, that treasure was a nice treasure. And they were hoping for more of that kind of money. When they realize they're not going to get it and Han Solo and, and Chewie basically end up in, in more, more or less a Mexican standoff, 
uh, they realize that Crimson Jack has also captured Princess Leia. And so now we get into another bluffing situation where Crimson Jack doesn't know Han Solo's connection with Princess Leia. So he bluffs and says that he planned to let Crimson Jack take them prisoner because he has a proposition. Basically, I came out of hyperspace. I saw you. I didn't run. Do you want you know why I didn't run? Because I need a star cruiser like yours because Crimson Jack flies uh basically a, a star destroyer it looks like that they've taken and and made into their uh, pirate ship which is great i mean that's a really fun idea to play with so only someone with a cruiser like cj has um so we got this big job we need you you need the job you need money you want money you love money right crimson jack let's work together so Crimson Jack brings Chewie and Han and they have dinner and there's a woman named Jolly or Jolly. I guess it probably probably is Jolly. J-O-L-L-I. I guess Jolie would be J-O-L-I-E, like the actress. But it, <laughs> that doesn't matter. So Solo is talking to Crimson Jack. He's he's bluffing some more about what his plan is. He he says, you know, I was with the Rebellion, but what you don't know is that this princess, she's with the Rebellion, and what you don't know about her is that when I was with her, she fell in love with me, and so he goes, uses that opportunity to embrace Princess Leia, pretend like he's, I guess, making out with her, but he's really whispering back and forth with her about, I've got a plan, you know, the longer this bluff works, the more time we're going to be able to to have. And then Princess Leia attacks him and <laughs> joins in the act, uh, not the way Han Solo would like her to, but basically, you know, this is you're disgusting you smuggler you and she knees him in the head i mean it's just it's not a good scene and uh it fits right into the plan though i mean it fits right into the bluff that he's giving he's basically saying you know she's in love with me and she's able to say i'm not in love with you but then she starts giving details of where they should go to find the rebel treasury it's in the drexel system but when you get there, you're going to have to deal with Luke Skywalker. And it's clear then, you know, she's bluffing and she's using this opportunity to get closer to the planet where Luke Skywalker has disappeared. So she's put in prison by Jolly and they have a little bit of a women's spat, you know, where Jolly's like, how how'd you get Han Solo to, to like you like that? And Princess Leia says, you don't like Han Solo, do you? Or is it that you don't like any Corellians? And then Jolie says, well, no, I, I don't like men in general. They're terrible. And it's really awkward kind of <laughs> conversation that I can't imagine appearing in any kind of modern comic. But what comes out of that is we also get her flashback as she's in prison now. And she's flashing back to Luke's mission and, and the transmission that he sent and that she went to go try and rescue him only to get captured right away by, by Crimson Jack. Finally, in the final four pages of the story, we get to see what happened to Luke. He has crash landed on a water world and their ship has remained seaworthy enough to stay afloat but they're getting attacked by dragons and, and there's all sorts of you know you just don't want to get attacked by a water dragon when you are trying to fix your spaceship so you can you know fly away again 
So the dragon is going to take their ship down. It's it's going to happen, and it's going to happen sooner rather than later. And so they they get into an escape pod, and they shoot out with the escape pod just as the dragon drags the ship down or knocks the ship down. Now, they're kind of out of the frying pan and, and into the, the fire here. But then, just as all hope seems lost, another dragon shows up. And this one has a rider on it. Next issue, Doom World. So, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about this issue. And I, I, I guess my biggest disappointment is I was really hoping to see a lot more of Luke. I was hoping that this would actually be about what was happening with Luke. And we do get that a little bit, but it's not until the very end of the comic where he shows up. Now, he does do stuff. He talks a little bit and shoots and stuff, and he's taking care of his droids. But this comic mainly belongs to Han Solo again. Uh, we're we're back with Han Solo. We're going to stay with Han Solo. Han Solo is the one who's driving all of the action uh, as he's dealing with Crimson Jack. And now, Princess Leia does take matters into her own hands a little bit, and, and that's good. But, yeah... It, I, I want Luke. I want to see Luke and Han Solo and his hijinks. They're great, but I, I'd like to you know have some balanced time here. Uh, let's talk about some supporting characters too. Jackson, the six foot uh, six foot green rabbit, returns. Uh, it's a flashback, but I'm I'm wondering is this the last I've seen of him other than on variant comics for modern Marvel. Star Wars comics. Uh, the rest of the crew also appears in, in flashback there. Then you have Crimson Jack. And you don't get much of his crew in this issue. Uh, but you do get Jolly. And she's this beret-wearing, chain-smoking uh, smuggler uh, who hates men and is hard as nails. And uh, I don't know what's going to happen with her right now. She's not all that interesting of a character to me. But... You know she's going to be around for this at least the story arc. We'll we'll see what happens with her if she does become a more interesting character. Another observation I have to make here is that Chewbacca is hard to draw. Now I made this complaint in some of the early issues of Star Wars about Darth Vader, and Darth Vader is don't get me wrong still hard to draw. The difference is Darth Vader being hard to draw in this issue is just one panel of a flashback and it's just kind of a floating head kind of thing as part of a collage. Chewbacca, on the other hand, wow. I mean, don't get me wrong. He looks cool. He looks very, very cool. He's just not Chewbacca. He's got broad shoulders and he's got this, you know, wide muscular stance as he's moving around. This is not Chewbacca from the movie. This is not the... Uh, large, lumbering, uh, almost clumsy Chewbacca from the movies who, you know, kind of shuffles as he runs. No, this guy, I mean, he's the, he, he's a Sasquatch. Uh, he's a gorilla. Uh, he's this massive beast of a man, which I'm saying all these things. I'm just, I'm describing Chewbacca from the movie, but it's very different what we get here, even though Yes, you take the description of this giant, hairy, brown, uh, walking dog man, and 
you know, you could either go with Chewbacca, what you get from Star Wars. I guess you could also have uh, Bartholomew from Spaceballs, or you'll get this beast of a creature here in, in this comic. He, he's dynamic. Uh, Chewbacca, the way he's drawn here by Carmine Infantino, he is well-suited to the comic book medium, but he is very, very different. He's He does not look like a man in a suit. I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, he's, he's just got this bearing of just mass and, and he's just muscle and fur and very, very different from what we get on the screen. And I, I guess you could chalk it up as just being stylized because all of the human characters in this are stylized. Carmine Infantino, that's what he does. He does stylized and I like it. There's something very interesting about his art something that's attractive and yet not quite human and i can't quite put my finger on it and and it's not just chewbacca it's not just his women it's not just his his men uh it's, it's kind of everything all together it's just this interesting art style that i can't really put my hand on it's angular but at the same time it's there's softness to it and uh, Princess Leia, Han Solo, and Chewbacca, and Luke, all of them, even the droids too, they're on a model with each other. They're they're consistently drawn throughout the issue. You wouldn't be able to take a picture of Han Solo, you know, and and put it up next to a lineup of uh, six men who are similar in build and and hair color and age to Harrison Ford. And be able to say, yeah, I know exactly which one of these is the guy that's being portrayed here. Uh, but that's style, and and it's not bad. It's just it's just going to take some getting used to. Now, I, I'll also say this though, Carmen Infantino. We aren't to this issue yet. It's not this issue we're talking about here. But my first Star Wars comic was drawn by him, and it was the first time I was in kindergarten. I was you know four or five years old. It was the first time I was confronted with an artistic, stylistic representation of real people. Uh, you know, I had seen the Superman movie and I had seen Super Friends and, and this cartoon Superman, but I wasn't looking at a cartoon Superman who was meant to be Christopher Reeve. I was looking at two different things. And, and then there was also the, the Superman uh, TV show who had an even different actor. And so I was looking at these, you know, different versions of a character. This was the first time where I was supposed to be looking at a comic book and the artwork was supposed to, you know, be a specific actor. And I, I remember looking at Han Solo and the style was the same as what we have here. And I remember just staring at him and looking at his cheekbones and trying to figure out what's the deal here. And why does he look like this? He doesn't look exactly the way that he looked when I saw him on the movie screen or when I saw him on the TV screen for the holiday special. Uh, it just it was a new thing for a young mind to to look at and to try and figure out but as as i said before it's good it, you can even say it's great but it is going to take some getting used to before i'm actually going to be able to say to myself yeah that's great 
And I have a feeling that I'm going to get used to it. I mean, they are on this for a long, long time. I, I don't know exactly how long. Uh, I don't want to know how exactly how long. I want that to be kind of a surprise as I'm discovering this month by month. But. And then finally we get to Luke Skywalker. And it's a good thing he was on the cover. That gives him a fifth page he can be on for actual uh, story. Uh, I, I'm curious, though, because the cover gives it all away. There is no mystery here. What happened to Luke Skywalker? Well, if you look on the cover, we're just going to take that cover image and then we're going to spread it out over three and a half pages. Now, it's no secret. I'm a fan of Luke Skywalker. I like Luke Skywalker. And you know the type of geeky question I'm talking about where you have uh, someone say, you know, who would you rather be or who would you rather hang out with or what's your favorite? And we had this conversation. I remember having it in college. You know, we just say Superman or Batman. Of course, for me, Superman. Uh, Luke Skywalker or Han Solo. And for me, it was always, always, always Luke Skywalker. I like Han Solo. He's a great character. And he does fun things and funny things. And I'm not going to talk about The Force Awakens. But Han Solo is in that. And he does things in that. And I liked it. Um, Luke Skywalker also is in that and does things in that. But... uh, Luke Skywalker is the one from the beginning that I latched on to. And so here I'm reading these comics and I'm just, okay, Han Solo, it's great, but we're on issue number 11. I want to see some stuff with, with Luke Skywalker, more than just a page of him saying, I'm going to go find a new base for us. And I don't, that's the other thing is his mission is to go and find a new base for the Rebel Alliance. This is something that I'm reading it right now and I'm just, oh, man, how many times did they do this? I have to force myself to, to remember this is the first time. Uh, this is the first time where they said, OK, what would they do next? They would go and look for a new base. And I don't know if this is something that came from George Lucas, because I don't know if at this point in time they knew exactly what was happening with Empire Strikes Back. Because they were looking at Splinter of the Mind's Eye as a potential sequel and looking at some of the earlier drafts of The Empire Strikes Back that come in. uh, I have an annotated screenplay book that has all three screenplays for all three of the original trilogy, but then also has all these different uh, notes and, and fragments from earlier drafts of those screenplays. And I'm trying to remember if there was a whole, you know, thing with the with a new rebel base but this is the first time and it's a natural thing to do if you're going to tell stories about this point in time for these characters and this is another thing that makes this series that we're reading here interesting this is the first time they tried to think logically about what would happen next with these characters after their base has been discovered but they blew up the death star so they've dealt a blow to the empire and the empire is going to have to go, you know, pull back and lick its wounds here. But that also by doing so painted a target on the moon of Yavan or, uh, Yavin, Yavin. Yavin. Yeah. At least I'm not getting as bad as Hoth and Hoth 
And if you listen to Welcome to Level 7, you know what I'm talking about. And Daniel, I kid. I kid because I love. And you're like the 16th most important person to me and blah, blah, blah. Um, Daniel Butcher is who I'm talking to right now. A co-host here on, on Comic Book Time Machine. So you, you know him. Uh, you know. I love him. I appreciate him. So next issue, Doom World. And I have a feeling that we are going to be spending more time with Luke Skywalker on this water planet. And the first thing my brain goes to when I see Luke Skywalker on a water planet is that kid came from a desert planet. This is a great place to take him. I don't know if they're going to actually play with the full potential of what this great place that they're taking him to can can give us. but. We'll find out when we get there. We'll find out when we get there. For now, I'm going to uh, bring this segment to a close, and we'll get ready for our next segment. So it's time to talk about a pop cultural icon who made a little trip into the Marvel 616 universe, and that pop cultural icon is, of course, Bigfoot. And Godzilla. Now, let me explain. I mean, the, the title of the series is Godzilla, King of the Monsters. So there's got to be some other monsters that Godzilla can be the king of, right? And who better than Bigfoot? Now, yes, the name of the creature is Yetrigar. And little little Kenny, well, he's not actually Kenny. He's named Rob, but he is the Kenny of the series. He calls it out and says that creature is just like a Yeti. Or a Yetrigar, as we call it, where I come from. And that's where we get the name. But it gets called out as Sasquatch earlier. I mean, they, they, they talk about this guy. He is Bigfoot. He's a really big Bigfoot. Well, how does he get that way? Well, it's funny you should ask because I'm about to talk about that right now. Uh, I'm going to tell you the story of Godzilla versus Yetrigar round one, or at least the first part of round one. I'm not sure how many rounds their battle is actually going to go and they don't actually finish their battle. They kind of just pause at the end for our cliffhanger. Now Godzilla number 10 uh, hit the stands February 2nd, 1978 has the cover date of May, 1978 as, as all the other books that we're covering in this uh, month of, of coverage. You can just call me captain redundancy, or you could also just call me, captain guy who repeats himself in words um anyway the writer doug mensch the penciler herb trimpey the inker fred Keita, the letterer john costanza the colorist mary titus and it has been reprinted in essential godzilla trade paperback all that information is available to you from mike's amazing world of comics now the reprinted in i could have told you because that's how i'm reading it i'm reading it in black and white in this essential edition but anyway uh, the story picks up right on the aftermath of last issue where Godzilla, uh, well, Godzilla went to Las Vegas. And what happened in Vegas stayed in Vegas. And what happened in Vegas was a whole lot of destruction. Godzilla is on his way out. He is now being followed by the shield helicarrier, the behemoth, which is a great big giant helicarrier that's big enough to hold hold Godzilla in the, in the hold. Um, I really need to work on learning new words maybe so i'm not just repeating the other words that i'm saying but 
anyway, they're they're following him. And Dum Dum and Gabe are having their philosophical differences, not just about the monster, you know, because Gabe is a monster lover and Dum Dum just wants to destroy Godzilla. But they also have philosophical differences about the area they're passing over, which had some underground nuclear tests. And in these underground nuclear tests, uh, Gabe says, you know, who knows what 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 problems this caused? And Dum Dum says, oh, don't tell me you're. Your anti-national defense, too. You don't even want us, you know, what 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 possible harm could a bomb test do? And then we flash back to the answer. There was that bomb test three months ago in that very spot that they are flying over right then. That test then triggered an underground seismic fault line. And that underground seismic fault line went all the way from, I think, Arizona into Alberta, Canada. Now, along that fault line in Alberta, Canada, in the mountains, there was a cave. And inside that cave, there was a Bigfoot, a Sasquatch, an abominable snowman, a Yeti, a Yetrigar, if you will. And it broke loose the ice that had held him in suspended animation. And as this creature came out of the ice, came out of the cave, the radiation that traveled along the fault line now go with me uh, the science may not work but you know what this is a godzilla comic book not national geographic or discovery channel or whatever so as bigfoot leaves the cave he grows and grows and grows and grows and you get the idea he's big he's giant he is now a kaiju. The flashback over, we come back to Gabe Jones, who answers Dub Dub Dugan's question. What on earth, or below it, could a lousy bomb test do? The answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows, Dum Dum. Nobody knows. Then, Bigfoot attacks. As they're flying over, they're following Godzilla, Bigfoot comes he marched all the way down from Alberta into Arizona. He picks up a giant rock, throws it at the helicarrier, the, hits the helicarrier, the helicarrier, the giant behemoth helicarrier, crashes. So they are no longer on the trail of Godzilla, but something else is on the trail of Godzilla, that is. And that would be Yetrigar, Bigfoot. Bigfoot attacks Godzilla they fight, but meanwhile, Jimmy Woo is a-wooing. He's wooing Rob's sister, and they're both supposed to be watching Rob because Rob is the little kid who, you know, snuck onto the Red Ronin robot, connected with it so no one else could, and then used it to let Godzilla escape. So they're telling him, yeah, stay away from it. You're, you know, you, this is your consequence. You got to time out from your giant robot. Well, he doesn't care. He sneaks away from them because they're lost. They're, they're lost in each other's eyes. And he sees that as his chance. They're going to put Red Ronin away. They're carting the, the robot away to get put into storage so they can fix it. He sneaks onto the thing up to the, the, the control room in the head. And you know what he's going to do, right? He's heard that, that Godzilla was in this this place called Las Vegas. So he flies away. 
and steals Red Ronin again. So the fight scene that's going on, it's a pretty cool fight scene. It's a fun fight scene. It's drawn just, it's a, it's a well-drawn, energetic, two giant monsters just slamming into each other. Godzilla bites, Yetrigar punches and grabs, and they, they're in the Grand Canyon, and they're rolling around on the river, and it's just a, a nice, massive, heavy monstrous fight of course the fight stops when red ronin flies down and and interrupts the battle and both the creatures look up at red ronin red ronin has rob in it and rob is thinking you know holy smokes their trail was easy to follow but who would have thought it would lead to this just look at him like the legends of the giant yeti from the snow mountains of our homeland they're called yetrigar but this one's no legend this yetrigar is real alive and he wants to kill godzilla Next issue, (laughs) I really enjoy this. The epic battle of three giant gladiators in the only arena that could do them justice. The Grand Canyon, Godzilla, Yetrigar, and Red Ronin. Plus, the parallel struggle of four hapless humans in Titans times three. Now, you know, this is just the first half of of this story. And I'll I'll, I'll be honest, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it might not come as any surprise to anyone who's listening right now. This is the kind of Godzilla story I like, but not only that, then you're, you're taking Godzilla. You've got monster fighting action. You've got current event issues with the nuclear testing and the effects of nuclear testing on the environment that we don't even know about. And then you also throw in a dash of what's really popular out there right now, kids, Bigfoot. Yes, this is the 70s. This is the Bigfoot craze. This is, uh, you know, in the 70s, the Bigfoot craze was kind of at the the fever pitch, I guess. Um, You had television shows about it. You had the $6 million man did an episode. I think it was October 77. Uh, You know, it's, it's quite possible that that did influence this a little bit. You had this show, and I do not know anything about this show, but I was looking up just some examples of, of what was going on in pop culture with Bigfoot. There is this TV show called Bigfoot and Wild Boy from 1977. I never got to see this show. I, I you know, I missed it. I was three, so it, actually it's possible that I did see it, and I just don't remember it. Um, but it's about a Bigfoot who found an infant who raised that child, and that's Wild Boy, and then they are going on adventures and, and helping people. Um, it's a Sid and Marty Croft, I think, uh, show, but I had never, ever heard of this so far as I knew. I watched the beginning credits of this thing, and oh my goodness, this is 70s cheese, just gold. It's it's wonderful. Uh, I don't know if the episodes will stand up, to the wonderfulness that the credits gave me. I don't know if I'm ever going to try and track down any episodes or anything like that, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's any kind of release at all and then to spend money. I don't know, but on YouTube, I did watch the credits and wow. So there's that happening. Uh, Leonard Nimoy's show in search of did uh, a segment on Bigfoot. And then you had, you know, 10 years earlier, what kind of launched, these sightings into the popular consciousness. You had that one film with Bigfoot and, 
that, so that's getting played on TV on shows like that's incredible and, and things like that, where they're, they're talking about Bigfoot and, you know, seventies is a perfect time where, you know, the pop culture is there with movies and TV shows. Cause there's a handful of movies in the seventies too about Bigfoot, but then you also had the information uh, being spread through these, you know, a wider reach for network television and, you know, drive-in theaters and all that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it just, <laughs> they're, they're just capitalizing on a craze. That's what you do when you're doing pop culture bubblegum, when you're doing throwaway entertainment, which is what a 35 cent comic really is meant to be in some ways is you read it and you get rid of it. It is not meant to be, uh, you know, slabbed into a, a poly bag or reprinted in a book like this for forever, you know, but that's what happened. You know, these things, these are cultural or pop cultural artifacts. And yeah, so here we have Godzilla fighting Bigfoot. Now, the other thing that Yetrigar reminds me of, though, is, is Frankenstein or the War of the Gargantuas, which has that human figure who's just kind of covered in hair. And then finally, the other thing that this issue reminds me of, especially in the fighting, is Godzilla versus King Kong, the uh, that first movie. Uh, now, I heard they're doing a, a reboot. They're going to take the new Godzilla, uh, the new American Godzilla, that is, and do some sort of Godzilla versus King Kong big budget sci-fi summer blockbuster. I don't know what that's going to be like. I heard about this a while ago that they were thinking about this, and my, my imagination just goes to, you know, what if it was Godzilla versus a hundred King Kongs? that aren't any taller than his knee or maybe even not even taller than his ankle. There could be some cool possibilities there, but uh, just I'm imagining the Bigfoot's crawling all over and trying to, you know, tear him apart and punch and all those kind of things. But I, I don't know. I, I don't see how that's really going to work well as a successful big budget summer blockbuster. I could be proven wrong, but I was reminded of that original Godzilla versus King Kong, which is one of the first Godzilla movies that I ever saw. I actually might be the first. I just remember watching it on Saturday afternoon a couple different times in the summer uh, with my dad and just laughing and laughing and laughing and having a lot of fun with with it. That's a fun, fun movie to watch. And so this reminded me of that a little more seriously, though. They're, they're taking the fight a little more seriously. It's it's a brutal knockdown drag out fight. But it's it's enjoyable and and well drawn and the Godzilla that they have he does not look like any Godzilla on the film that I've ever seen like I've said before but he has retained the the model they have stayed on target and he has not changed in look to become more like something from the movies he still looks like this Marvel Comics Godzilla and you know I've kind of grown to appreciate the big guy looking like that so the other things that this takes on, like I said, is some some sociological issues, the nuclear testing fears. Um, not that this is actually possible. I mean, that's what, you know, the original Godzilla was building on, too, was, you know, you had this radiation or these nuclear testings and the radiation actually killed people on some fishing boats. Well, that that became the inspiration for the first few scenes of the Godzilla movie, the original Godzilla movie. And the, the, the nuclear testing is what, you know, brought this creature to life. And so, yeah, this is not possible. No one is saying that there's going to be this giant monster. No, the, the giant monster is a metaphor. 
for Godzilla, in Godzilla's case anyway, the giant monster is a metaphor for the destruction that the nuclear testing and that the actual usage of nuclear bombs brought upon Japan. In this case, with Yetrigar, this kind of becomes a representation of Gabe's answer to Dum Dum's question about the nuclear testing. And that is that nobody knows what the repercussions is. Nobody knows what the consequences of doing this will be. These There's going to be unintended consequences. There are going to be unknown consequences. These are things that we can't measure how this affects things, you know, and, and the far-reaching effects of it. And I'm not sure if this is also uh, a part of this, but the the th- the way it travels from Nevada to Alberta, uh, from from our desert to the mountains of Canada, which eh, you gotta go with it. You either go with it or you don't. And this is one of those things where I'm I'm gonna go with it, but I'm gonna go with it a little grudgingly, I guess. But the the far-reaching effects of this test. And I'm not sure when they started realizing that there was um, stuff, uh, you know, radiation and, and, and stuff with, with like the acid rain that was coming, you know, pollution causing acid rain in Canada. Uh, I remember it, for me, it was in, in the middle eighties after I had moved back to the States and I found out I was reading some article in Time magazine or Newsweek magazine in my social studies class. And the article was about acid rain in Canada that was caused by pollution in the United States. And it bothered me. It bothered me a lot, mainly because I I lived up in the woods in Canada and it was gorgeous. It's beautiful. The evergreen trees. And I, I, I loved where we lived. I wasn't a mountain man or anything like that, where, you know, I just would go out and and chop down trees and, and whittle wood and stuff like that. No, I was I was still a soft, a soft, soft, geeky little boy living out in those woods. But I I love the land. And and when I found out about this acid rain, it really made me made me angry. And so I don't know if when they started realizing that, that there was this acid rain happening. I, I know acid rain is something that they've known about for a long, long time. I'm just not sure when they started realizing that it was the United States that was polluting Canada. But I can't help wondering if some of that idea, we got this ha- thing happening in Nevada that affects something up in Alberta, if that is re- referencing some of that acid rain kind of thing. And if at the very least, it is definitely referencing that you do things here, it affects things everywhere. And I'm not saying that it affects, you know, global warming and all that kind of thing. I am saying though that we are a global community and little things can have far-reaching, much much further reaching consequences than are intended. I don't think anyone set out to, you know, create pollution that was going to kill a forest, you know, way out in Canada. Uh no one intended to do that. But once they realized it was starting to happen, you know, then you have to figure out, well, what do we do about it now? Because we're dependent on, on these things that we're creating. So these are definitely questions of, of environmentalism and stuff that we're being asked here in this book. And, you know, I don't know how deep they intended to go with this, but it made my thoughts go pretty deep. Now, there's also the idea of some pretty ridiculous coincidence happening here. Uh, Three months ago, a test just happened 
to take place where Godzilla is right now. And Bigfoot apparently uh, followed the trail of radiation to get there at that very moment that that Big G was going to get there. Uh, yeah, again, you got to go with it or you don't. And I'm willing to go with it because of where it takes me to a pretty cool fight in the Grand Canyon. So, yes, and it's something that big fight in the Grand Canyon. It's far better than a lot of fights that take place out in the wilderness in a Godzilla movie or <coughs> King Kong lives. Whew. You know, King Kong lives actually had some scenes and settings that were similar to this with their giant, you know, gorilla people in gorilla suits. And I'll take this any day over King Kong lives, but King Kong lives is one of those movies that if you've listened to this at it for any length of time, you know, I like cheesy stuff. I like bad movies. Uh, but King Kong lives is not the kind of bad movie that I really, really like now. I, I am trying to think of what would I, if, if someone needed me to watch it for a podcast to, to talk about it, maybe I'd watch it again, but I can't imagine really any reason other than as a personal favor to somebody why I would watch this movie again. Oh, King Kong lives. Oh, so horrible. Oh, I need to do something else to, to get my mind off of that. Let's, let's get back to the comic here. Um, this is the first half of a story. And so I'm, I'm not going to judge it yet, but I'm enjoying this first half. The only thing I'm worried about is I look forward to Godzilla number 11 is that Red Ronin is involved. Red Ronin is so cool on the outside, but you know what they say? It's what's inside that counts. I mean, going back even into the Bible with David when he was going to be anointed king and and the prophet Samuel said, you look on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And the heart of Red Ronin is a little boy named Rob, the Kenny, air quotes, Takaguchi. <laughs> yeah. So let's see. Can the next chapter transcend the awfulness that Rob could bring? Or even better, will Rob surprise me? And actually start endearing himself to me, which would be wonderful because that would solve a lot of problems with this comic uh, series for for me anyway. So I just want to end my coverage of this comic with with a quote from Dum Dum Dugan that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, you know, Dum Dum, he's just he's Dum Dum Dugan. You know, what can you say? He He's just got this abrasive personality and yet. There's something about him that you just kind of enjoy. He's the kind of guy that I, I just like to hang out with, but I wouldn't want to be on his bad side. After the behemoth crashes, Dum uh, Dum Dugan is standing outside shaking his fists. Uh, the Sasquatch Yetdragar is running off, and he says to the people who are, who are running running out of the behemoth to join him, don't just stand there helpless, you lame brain yahoos. Least you can do is start cussing like me. <laughs> of course, they don't show him cussing, but you know, he's just that type of guy. So anyway, that's that's where I'm gonna end here with the Godzilla and the uh the next next segment of, of this coverage for May 1978 is going to be Human Fly 
number nine. So we'll see if I retain my good mood after reading that one, because that one was not headed in a good direction. And I don't know if uh, the addition of Daredevil is going to help it be uh, really that much better. We are looking at right now uh, issue number nine of Human Fly. Issue number nine of Human Fly entitled, And Daredevil Makes Three. Three heroes, that is. There are three heroes to take down this supervillain. He must be a terribly awful, horrible, no good, very bad supervillain to need three heroes to take him down. It is the Sinister Copperhead. Uh, whom I've never heard of. And this is Copperhead 2, actually, not Copperhead 1. Copperhead 1, I guess, is dead. Uh, this is the guy who took his place. And I just got done reading it. And, you know, actually, uh, since it was guest starring Daredevil, I chose to listen to the Daredevil soundtrack uh, as I was reading this. And it, it added, it added a little bit to it. Uh, the Daredevil soundtrack is very, very good. I really, really like that soundtrack. I mean, it's a great series, too. Let's be honest. Uh, over on Welcome to Level 7, I I did a review of every single episode of the Daredevil series, and I, I enjoyed it. It was a fantastic 13 hours of television, even though, strictly speaking, I don't know if you would actually call it hours of television because it was created to be streamed uh, online through Netflix, I'm sure that it'll be available on DVD at some point, like most of the other Netflix series. But for now, it's on Netflix exclusively, and it was it's part of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, the writing is fantastic. The cinematography, fantastic. The themes, fantastic. The music, fantastic. Um, why am I talking about that right now instead of talking about Human Fly? Well, because all those things are fantastic. And this is the human fly. Yeah. I guess we should go ahead and jump into it. Oh, man. Let's jump into it. The cover has a human fly hanging by his feet on some sort of railing, trying to pull children out of water that seems to be flooding a museum. In the background, uh, White Tiger is battling Copperhead. And then there is another blurb that says Daredevil is going to be in this issue, this cover, you know, if it was just human fly and you know, the children, maybe it'd be okay. It's just really busy, weird angles to all the architecture. Uh, the two fighting figures in the background don't add to any of the excitement. It just adds to the, the confusion, just the mass of stuff. Um, it's not a, it's not a well done cover. <sighs> So, uh, this is part two of, of a story about Copperhead and White Tiger teaming up with, with Human Fly. And, uh, well, I'm just going to, I'll just do the plot and then talk a little bit about some of my thoughts about this plot. Here's the deal. Last issue, we left it where uh, Copperhead has killed some people in the museum because he's trying to steal a, a great big, huge, huge urn. Uh, in stealing the urn, he started shooting at Human Fly and some kids who had to hide behind the urn just as it was lowering down into an unused subway tunnel that started filling up with water. Meanwhile, 
the cops found one of the Copperhead's murder victims and thought it was White Tiger. White Tiger obviously didn't do it. And White Tiger confronted Copperhead, and Copperhead shot him with poison darts. So that's where we start off. White Tiger is on the ground in the museum, dying of poison darts. Human Fly is in a flooding tunnel with children and the museum curator and and his friends. And so how are we going to get out of this situation? Well, exactly the way I thought it was going to be. They all climb into the urn as the subway tunnel floods, and then they start floating down the tunnel. Meanwhile, and this I kind of like this element here. Uh, it, it adds to this White Tiger character. He hasn't had his own book yet. Um, I don't know if he ever got his own book. I know that a female version of the character got her own book later on. Actually, Professor Allen and Emily uh, covered that on the Relatively Geeky Network, uh, their their podcast stream that has a lot of different things. They, they covered that that miniseries. Sounds like a really good miniseries. Sounds interesting. Um, I'm trying to figure out if maybe if it would be better than, than Human Fly. I, I don't know. <sighs> Human Fly has such potential. Ah, we'll talk about that. I'm going to write that down. Potential. Let's talk about the potential of Human Fly. But back to the actual story here. Not the potential story, but the actual story. Uh, the, the way White Tiger gets out of his predicament is he changes back into Hector. So apparently it's a physical transformation. I don't know if he is uh, getting a new body, if he's trading out a body, or if it's like a... I mean, is it like Captain Marvel or Shazam, as he's now called over at DC uh, or Captain Marvel here in the, the Marvel Universe? Or I'm not sure exactly how that works, but by making that transformation, he is back to his normal body and his normal body does not have the poison in the body. So he is now not poisoned. He actually then, without powers, confronts Copperhead as Copperhead is, is fighting the police. And now the police don't think that White Tiger did it anymore because they saw uh, Copperhead, you know, shoot, shoot White Tiger with the same darts that killed the, the murder victim earlier. So yay, yay for Hector there. But uh, yeah, I like the element of Hector jumping into the battle without his power to help the police. That's great. That's heroic. And it's one page in this whole story. So then we get to page 11. <laughs> and page 11, I'm going to have to read from this. It's just... <sighs> It's not the right kind of goofy. And I'll explain what kind of goofy it is in a moment here. But uh, as Human Fly is floating down in his copper urn boat, uh, it says, As the Human Fly is caught up in his eerie odyssey below the streetlight-bathed hills of Central Park, those same lights pick out another figure perched high atop the ro a rooftop of the Central Park Zoo. He is Daredevil, the man without fear. And then Daredevil is, is thinking, he's watching some bad guys who are watching a hole. He says, when my super senses first picked out a dozen of New York's hottest art smugglers in the crowd watching the human fly stunt in front of the museum today, I thought to myself, DD, something's rotten in the Big Apple. So I followed them. But instead of going into the museum, as I would have expected, they came here to an open shaft construction site that's part of the city's new subway extension. Why? What are they waiting for? Or whom? I don't like to be kept waiting. <laughs> but he, he chooses. He's, he's just going to sit there and wait until he sees what they did. So his super senses allowed him to pick out these art thieves. I, I'm 
I'm assuming he overheard them whispering to each other or something like that, but it just seems goofy. It just seems goofy. It really, it seems like something like, hey, we need Daredevil. Hmm. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, White Tiger ends up going down into the shaft with Copperhead as the shaft is closing up because he's he's activated the, the mechanisms that opened it up in the first place. They fall in just before it closes. They float down the river uh, <laughs> on each other. White Tiger is keeping Copperhead afloat because Copperhead is wearing this armor, copper armor. They float down this this water flooding through the, the subway. And uh, anyway, uh, the urn stops at that shaft where the bad guys were. Daredevil jumps out because uh, the bad guys plan to just straight up murder the children so there won't be any any witnesses. Daredevil jumps down just in time, starts fighting the bad guys who were there. Human Fly just sticks with the kids because, you know, he's not a superhero. Why would he do that? He's he's not a superhero, so he shouldn't go up there and help. He's just going to stay there with the kids in the urn. After the bad guys are kind of defeated, Human Fly starts trying to get out of the urn with the kids, but Copperhead's there because, you know, he pushed White Tiger under the water long enough for him to not breathe anymore. And we almost think he might be dead. Uh, well, almost, except the very next panel shows us that he's not. So Copperhead, I mean, I mean, there's just absolutely no tension. Zero, zero tension. As <laughs> Copperhead stands up, says he's dead. That's good. And actually, it's almost more like he commands him to be dead, like stay down in the water and don't breathe anymore. And I'm going to go up there because I have business to get to. And White Tiger stands up in the next panel. Uh, not even the next page. It's not even a page turn thing. It's just the next panel in the middle of the page. Uh, so absolutely no tension there. <laughs> then Copperhead confronts Human Fly. And again, I'm going to read from this because the museum curator recognizes Copperhead's voice. Fly, his voice. I, I know who Copperhead really is. And then Copperhead is going to give his origin story. So Copperhead begins to monologue. Yes, Senorita Marcato, I am Reynolds. No, wait, only one S there. I am Reynolds, your former employee. For years, I worked meekly in the... Oh, they did it again. I just don't understand. It's like he just hit three S's or four S's whenever he had an S in... Copperhead's dialogue, but he did it for the shadows too. And he doesn't do it for the S sounds like say in, uh, for years, I worked meekly in the shadows of others, a master craftsman at restoring priceless works of art price. It should have multiple S's, shouldn't it? Yet younger, inexperienced, nobodies were advanced over me. But as I painstakingly worked upon the great urn, I was unaware of the dark secrets of one of my co-workers. This is... Ugh. Until that worker's death when he was revealed as... See, it's not... It, as. That's a Z sound. I, I guess you can add the, the S's there, but... Yeah, anyway, um... He recognizes that Lawrence Chesney once worked side by side with him and he was a psychotic killer. The Daily Chronicle has a headline that says Copperhead 
dead. So this gives him a brilliant idea. <laughs> you know, he says, Chesney may have been mad seeking revenge against those who had, or so he thought, wronged his father. But he was also the most thorough man I'd ever known. If there was one suit of copperhead armor, there must be another hidden away for emergencies. Uh, so he gets to the apartment and shows him opening a closet and saying, I've beaten to I've beaten the police to Chesney's apartment and ah, a hidden closet and a second Copperhead costume, just as I had anticipated. Now, he's not doing multiple S's before he was Copperhead. He says there was power in that costume, power Chesney in his madness never thought of using the power to acquire great wealth criminally. So basically, this guy's origin story is that. He goes and tracks down a the, the spare suit from a supervillain who is pretty ridiculous to begin with and then starts talking with a forked tongue styled lisp that a snake would have if it could speak human languages. <sighs> well, all that monologuing done, human fly finally decides to act, jumps out against Copperhead. White Tiger does as well. They both attack from either side. And it causes uh, causes Copperhead to fall into the water and disappear. And meanwhile, Daredevil has finished fighting those bad guys, and he arrives just in time to be in the final panel <laughs> because he he hears them talk about Copperhead. He says, "Dead or alive, he's one of the deadliest foes I've ever faced. I've got to get there," and he doesn't even get there in time. Like he literally shares one panel with our our heroes other than when he jumps out against the bad guys uh but he doesn't share any panels with human fly he just he just shows up and chases the bad guys and and starts beating them up this isn't good this is not a good story this is not a good comic i <laughs> oh man Oh, the dialogue in this comic. Page 14 has this exchange between Hector and Copperhead. And it's just so cliche and cheesy. And it actually calls out the cliche. But the guy who calls out the cliche starts also using some of those things. So, yeah, Copperhead says, Filthy street scum to lay hands on Copperhead is to forfeit your life. Hector says, you got to be jiving, amigo. Where do you come up with lines like that? Television? A cursed fool you will pay. Not me, senor. I'm unemployed. <laughs> Look out, kid. You're going over the balcony. Oh, too late. They're falling into the shaft. Again, you know, this is a rule of comics. You know, show, don't tell. But just in case, you know, for the people in the, the back seats. And Hector says, I hope you can swim in your heavy metal Halloween suit, senor. <laughs> oh, it's just not great. And, you know, this started out where at least it had the idea of, you know, inspiration, inspiring people to overcome adversity and that kind of thing. And we just kind of get away from that. And here's here's my take on this issue. This reminds me of role playing, superhero role playing games. And last issue, you know, Bill Mantlo, he's our GM. And as the game master, uh, he's come up with a villain that is, you know, tied into, uh, you know, 
some of his more obscure comics and stuff like that. But he has you know taken a dead character and revived him and, and created kind of a new backstory and that kind of thing. Then you have his two players who show up, and you have Ted and Carl, and they both roll for their characters, and they create their new heroes, Human Fly and and White Tiger. And, you know, for for Ted, who's playing White Tiger, he kind of did the same thing that the Game Master did, where he said, I'm going to pull out this, this other character who doesn't have a lot of history and have similar powers, and, and you know, I rolled powers that are similar to that, so I'm going to go with that. And Carl, he's like, no, I want to really make up a, a really intense backstory about how he was in an accident and he lost his family, and then he became a stuntman with titanium bones, and... And he's completely nonviolent. You know, you have to really push him to actually engage in any violence. And Ted, he starts thinking about his backstory. He's like, oh, yeah, he's, he's a Hispanic superhero. And, and he's just like me because he, he tells really bad one-liners, you know, when he, when he's, whenever something happens. And, and then they do their adventure last month. That's, that's the last gaming session. This gaming session, this month... Joe comes and joins them. Now they don't have time to roll up a whole new character for Joe. They want to jump into the game. So they just they just get the stats for Daredevil and they give Joe Daredevil and then they're like, you know, okay, so where can we do what can we do to bring the characters together? Uh, we'll have Daredevil start out where both uh, Human Fly and White Tiger are going to end up. And they're playing along, but none of the decisions the characters are making uh, that Joe, Ted and Carl are making are bringing the characters back together the way the game master really was planning them to do. And so they get towards the end of the gaming session and it's just kind of, well, how do we bring them back together? We, we can't. And, and so he, you know, Bill, he's the game master. He's trying to push the characters to come together and they are just not, you know, Ted and Carl and Joe, they all have their own ideas of what their characters should be doing, and none of them have anything to do with each other, and it's just a mess. It's just a mess. But, you know, what, what are you going to do? You've got to bring together these three characters. you got to... And so they just wrap things up, and Human Fly and, and White Tiger attack Copperhead before the Game Master has a chance to bring Joe and Daredevil back over to that scene because Joe, he's still fighting he's still fighting hoods over in the zoo. And so the game session ends. Joe might as well not have he might as well have not even been there. Why did they even let him play in the first place? I mean, they were in the middle of their own campaign. They could have brought him in at a better spot. Maybe they could have let him roll a character while they were playing the, these two characters. And, and then Joe could come back next month, you know, for the next gaming session. Which, by the way, the next gaming session for their Marvel superheroes uh, role-playing campaign is uh, Violence in the Coal Fields, where it's as dark as a dungeon down in the mines. That's the time to bring in Daredevil when you're in a mine and it's dark. <sighs> this comic. This comic. But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and, and push on through and listen to great music while I read really, really poor comics. So in the letters page, there was some letters where they were talking about um, Human Fly number six was entertaining, suspenseful, and one of the best comics I've ever read. 
Uh, another reader writes in and starts his letter with a quote from Charles Lamb in 1801. Credulity is the man's weakness, but the child's strength. And then he's talking about how the strong start for human fly, but then it started turning into Saturday morning cartoons. And uh, he's liking how the, how things are going now. And then the, the last letter says, what can I say? Frank Robbins art is so alive, so action packed. And your writing is so tight, full of caring and sensitivity that, wow, please keep this team together and keep the fly a living, breathing character. Speaking of our team, it's Bill Mantlo as writer. It's Frank Robbins, artist. Mike Esposito as inker. John Costanza, letters. Mary Titus, colors. And Archie Goodwin, editor. And then they respond to the letter. And they say, as for the Mantlo Robbins team, they'll be doing the human fly together only on a semi-regular basis with Lee Elias scheduled as the book's main artist in between. However, you can catch Bill and Frank's collaboration every month in Marvel's new smash hit, Man from Atlantis. That's a plug, fella. But we don't think you'll be sorry if you pick up on it. So with that said, I think it's time for us to go to the next segment. And our next segment will be Man from Atlantis. And I'm much more excited about that than I was about this. I just I wish it would start getting back into that kind of so bad it's good kind of. I mean, even that goofy race. At least I was laughing at the absurdity. This is just flat, unemotional. And and lifeless, uh, if if I could be so so mean. Oh, I'm I'm a mean comic book reader just now. Ugh. Okay, well I didn't plunk down my thirty five cents for this. I plunked down my dollar, and that's seventeen pages for that dollar. Just didn't even get me any. I got I got a lot of eye rolling, but not a lot of laughter or anything. So. Maybe down in the coal mines, there'll be a little more more laughs. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. But that's all for now. I want to thank you for listening. And if you have read any Human Fly comics, well, we're nine issues in. So I'd love to hear from you. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Human Fly. And maybe, maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe I'm being too harsh. Because maybe it is supposed to be uh, a Saturday morning cartoon. But I'm telling you, I mean, I wrote down, like I said, uh, the potential there's a lot of potential in this character. There's a lot of potential in how the character views violence and views superheroics and, and all those kind of things. But I'm telling you, that potential is certainly not being lived up to. And, you know, this is Bill Mantlo, and I've said this often. There are things that are coming up that he's written that make me a huge, huge fan of him. Human Fly is not one of them. So the series title for this podcast feed is Marvel's Cosmic Comics. That's what I'm calling this. But this series that we're actually talking about, well, it's 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 under the sea. But it goes cosmic on us as we are taking a look at the uh, Killer Spores from issue number four, May cover date, 1978. Release date, or street date, uh, February 14th, 1978. Now, when this was published, the show was actually on hiatus. It had, the first half of the season had aired up through December 13th, and it wasn't going to come back until uh, April, April 18th, I think, is the next episode that would air on TV. And it wouldn't last much longer 
than that before it was canceled. Even though they had a full season order, they only got through uh, 13 episodes. So since the last time, though, I've, I've got some news. I actually have Man from Atlantis news. Yeah. Yeah, wrap your head around that one. At least it's not human fly news. Although, actually, recently there was some human fly news. When I say recently, I mean like two, three years ago, someone had the license to publish new human fly comics, and they were actually going around to conventions with a guy dressed up as the human fly, although it wasn't actually the human fly. And I don't know whatever happened with that. I think they published one one issue, and, and that was it. But the, uh, the news I have about Man from Atlantis is much more timely and also um, much more impressive than <laughs> some people who didn't have anything to do with the human fly, so far as I can tell, publishing a book that has the human fly in it. No, this is uh, in June of this, this coming year, 2016. Uh, we're still in 2015 as, I'm, as of this recording. Uh, Patrick Duffy who portrayed Mark Harris, man from Atlantis, on the screen, is coming out with a novel. And the title of the novel is Man from Atlantis. I don't think I've mentioned this before, but, well, if I have mentioned this before, I don't remember mentioning it, so I'm just saying it now. I, I've ordered the book. I pre-ordered it. It'll come out June 21st, 2016. And I don't know if this is the trilogy that he was planning and starting back in the early 2000s. But he is uh, publishing this this book. I think he's doing it on his own. Um, actually, I, if I'm looking at Amazon right here, it's being published by Permuted Platinum. Permuted Platinum? What is that? Permuted Platinum. Seems like a, a lot of horror... And and that kind of uh, zombie stuff, uh, but look, oh, they also have some sort of deal with Simon and Schuster. Okay, well, I don't know. Anyway, I'm getting the book. So I, I did say I I had some news, and obviously the the book news is is news, uh, and I'm I'm interested to see what he does with that. He says that he can tell a story that's bigger than anything the television series could do, and that's that's true. There's truth to that statement. We'll see what he does. Uh, I do know that when uh, I read an interview about a book he was writing years and years ago and with that he uh he said that he wanted to also explore the origin story because you know man from Atlantis is basically like a born identity kind of thing uh man from Atlantis washes up on the shore he has no memory uh it also reminds me of 13 uh comic series that was from from Europe that I actually worked on uh the the American adaptation so, you know, we have the whole amnesia thing, though, and, and he wanted to explore what is the character's origins. I'm I'm interested in finding out. Uh, I said news, though, as if there was more than one news item. And I guess the other news item is that I did. I went ahead and got the DVDs. I did it. I, I was a Christmas present to myself uh, and also a celebration of finishing uh, a script for one of my publishers. And. I went ahead, I got both the television movies that has the four television movies on it that were 90 minutes each, two hours when they were on TV, but they're you know, about 90 or so minutes each. And then the the uh, television series, the complete 13 episodes. And I've just started in on the television series, and I can say this right now, uh, 
I probably will will agree with myself when I get to the end of the television series, but really the only thing you need to get if you really want to experience Man from Atlantis and what was kind of good about it uh, and kind of not good about it and kind of cheesy, you know, just all that kind of stuff. If you want to really experience it, get the get the TV movies one. You'll get the origin episode and you'll get some uh, cheesy 70s low budget sci-fi storytelling. Uh, this television series, when it started... Uh, they changed some things and they changed out like how things worked on the, the submarine. Uh, it became more of a Star Trek kind of thing. Now, my understanding is that the idea for the show was meant to be even in the beginning, uh, kind of a Star Trek kind of thing, Star Trek underwater, where they're exploring and they're finding things and they're, you know, you're getting these metaphorical stories about the human, uh, the human experience. But they actually gave them uniforms and, and and it was you know these are civilians who are kind of running the submarine, but uh, civilian scientists, and, and now they're wearing these kind of pseudo Star Trek uniforms. And I'm I'm not a big fan of of that change. Uh, but I haven't seen too many of the the actual episodes from that. I have watched all four of the television movies though, and I really I, I enjoyed them for what they were, and I enjoyed the the kitschiness, but I also enjoyed the the attempt at, you know, storytelling that was going to say something. And the other thing I enjoyed was, was the character of Schubert and Schubert, who was in the second issue, I think it was of, of man from Atlantis. Uh, he was one of those first, first villains there. And he, the, the issue that he, the issues that he was in, I guess actually might even been last issue was kind of the two issue thing. So yeah, issue two and three, uh, I mentioned the Bond feel to things where you had the Bond base and you had the Bond villain and that kind of thing. And that, that Schubert was this kind of big, fat Bond villain. In Man from Atlantis, the TV show, he is awesome. He's played by Victor Buono. I'm not sure how you say his last name. It's B-U-O-N-O, who is a character actor that I, I kind of recognize from things, but I don't know if I've actually... I can't remember anything he's been in. I've read that he was in Batman. Um, actually, let's see. Yeah, he played King Tut on Batman. He was in Wild Wild West. He was Count Manzeppi. Again, I cannot tell you anything about those two characters. I don't remember them. King Tut, I have vague, vague, vague memories of. But he... He's he's Schubert in in Man from Atlantis, and he plays Schubert. It's so offbeat. It's just that episode of the show that he first appeared, and he's in episodes of the, the series. But he was in the one of those two hour movies, and he just ambles along. He puts his hands in his pockets. He speaks slowly. He's not quite a southern gentleman, but he is kind of a, a gentleman, and he's just. Well, you, you discovered my plan, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to not allow this to be stopped, and so I'm going to put you into something that's going to hold you in place until I melt the polar caps or whatever. I mean, he's just very low-key, very, very quiet, uh, understated. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't chew any of the scenery. Um, he doesn't even gum the scenery. But he's just enjoyable to watch, and I'm hoping that some of these episodes, the ones that I've seen in the actual series when they started doing hour-long episodes, it's similar, 
but it's not quite as ah, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's just not quite as natural. It, it's almost as if they're trying to figure out how do we do what we did before, and it's someone who doesn't quite understand what they did before trying to mimic it or something. I don't know. But anyway, I, I like him a lot, and he's not at all what I expected. Uh, and that, that kind of it, that gave a lot of life to the episode, even though he's kind of playing the character in a lifeless way. But definitely the, the two-hour movies are the, are the ones to watch until I get to the end of those 13 episodes from the, the actual season when they, when they gather order. Um, then I'll, I'll let anyone know. Not that I think anyone's really chomping at the bit to find out from me, ooh, should I buy Man from Atlantis, the DVDs? But if you like 70s sci-fi, if you like any of that kind of uh, era of television, I think you'll enjoy the, the Man from Atlantis series. Uh, the reason I got them was they were on sale also. And so I was, I had that extra money from that script and I'm just thinking to myself, should I, should I? And I did. So speaking of those two hour movies, that brings us to this, the subject of this episode, which is, uh, the killer spores, which was adapted from an episode of the show uh, to one of those two hour episodes called the killer spores. Now the killer spores episode was written by John D.F. Black. Does that name ring any bells for you? Well, it didn't for me, uh, but when I did click on his credits list, then it started bringing... It, it, that rang bells right there. Uh, he wrote for Murder, She Wrote. I don't know what what episode, but uh, he wrote for Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek. He wrote uh, The Naked Time for the original series, and then he wrote The Naked Now for The Next Generation. He also wrote Justice which, if I remember correctly, is a terrible episode. I believe that's the one with the Pleasure Planet, where Wesley Crusher breaks a planter while playing space frisbee, or something like that. And then he gets put on trial, uh, and it's capital punishment for his crime, because any crime is capital punishment, and then this whole prime directive thing. I may be way, way off with my memory of what that episode is, but... Uh, yeah, this guy wrote that episode. He also wrote for the streets of San Francisco. Uh, he worked on the Wonder Woman television movie from 1974. He wrote for Hawaii Five-0, all these things, Mission Impossible. And he wasn't credited at all in this comic. <laughs> so he just, um, they just say it's freely adapted from the TV show. Now, the credits for this issue are as follows. Bill Mantlo, writer. Frank Robbins, penciler. Frank Springer, inker. Irv W. I think it's Watanabe. I can't remember now. Letterer. Uh, Jay Cohen, colorist. And Archie Goodwin, editor. And so I'm going to give a little bit of a, a blow by blow for the the actual issue and then talk about what they cut out because this is 17 pages. Yes, a two-hour TV movie told in 17 pages. This might be the most crunched-in adaptation that we've talked about, although the deep... Well, you know, when, when you're talking about minute versus page, this might have the lowest ratio. Anyway, the story is pretty simple. Uh, Mark encounters spores on a fallen satellite that is landed underwater. It uh, The satellite fell because it picked up an extra six ounces or something like that of weight. 
and the computers couldn't handle that kind of a change in weight. These spores, uh, he, he can see them. They are alive, but only Mark can see them with his special eyes, his underwater eyes, and they communicate with him. And he tries to convince the others we need to help these spores. And he, they, the spores help him figure out a way to let everyone see them. And they say, yes, we will help. We must help, but we can't help because we don't know what to do. If The only way we can help them is to get them into space. How can we get them into space? So the spores think that they have been betrayed. They were told that they would be helped. And then they were told, uh, they could tell that, that the people were saying, no, we can't help them. So they take control of Mark. He runs off, gets in a car, drives away. He doesn't know how to drive a car, but the spores are able to read how to drive a car from the memories of other people. And he gets followed by the chips, the California Highway Patrolman on motorcycles and ends up getting run off the road and hurt. He lands in the sands of the desert and then a helicopter comes, picks him up and they fly him over the water. He jumps into the water because he's going to help those spores no matter what, because even though they tried to take control, you know, they were just doing it out of self-preservation. So he dives into the ocean. He swims and they say, look, we'll help you. And so he gets on the uh, cretation or cetacean, cretation, the cetacean, which, by the way, sidebar here, the cetacean, their submarine, which has these like it's it's kind of iconic look to it, has these uh, four spheroid type things underneath the submarine top and it's meant for scientific purposes and stuff like that. You wouldn't know this from any of the following episodes, but the episode with Schubert, that's his submarine. He is using that to bring scientists down to his utopia underwater, and they use it then to escape. And then after that point, the good guys are using this submarine as if it's their own. They totally have stolen it from Schubert and are just using it as if it's their own. And you just, in the episodes that I've seen, they don't even make a mention of it when Schubert is going up against them. He doesn't say anything like, ah, my submarine, I recognize it. Not one mention of where that submarine came from, but they stole it from Schubert. I find that really, really funny. Maybe more funny than it actually is, but it still made me chuckle a little bit when I realized what was going on. Anyway, uh, they somehow have a rocket in there. And so they take the satellite that they were supposed to return to NASA. They put it at the tip of the rocket. They put the spores back on the satellite and then launch the rocket from under the sea out into space to get those spores back to where they came from. That's the story in the comic. And it's very, very, very close to the story in the TV movie. Now in the TV movie, I thought they were ripping off Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I was positive they were ripping off Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Not the original, the 70s version. Impossible, though. That episode aired May 17th, 1977. Body Snatchers was December 1978. I was shocked because of the similarities of these spores out in space. Coming down, they're able to take over people. When they do take over people, they get kind of this blue-green pallor to their face. And uh, I was just thinking, you know, the, you had these extras who come in for, you know, episodes in a row thinking they're just going to have like a background part, you know, sitting on the submarine acting like Lieutenant Uhura saying, uh, hailing frequencies open or 
know, the president wants to speak to you, you know, that kind of thing. But they actually got them in the makeup because they were taken over. And there's a whole lot of filler in some of these, well, especially this episode here, where they're taking over random people and they're making them do weird things. And But I was sure it was Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's not. It is not ripping that off. Uh, but anyway, some of the other things they took out is they cut out a bunch of bureaucratic shenanigans. There was all this stuff about how NASA wanted their satellite back because it cost so much money and it would cost so much money to launch a rocket if, if they were going to try to take the spores back up. And they're trying to keep NASA from getting the satellite so that NASA doesn't know about the spores and that the spores are sentient life. And uh, then the, sp the spores take over people who are in key positions to keep the satellite from NASA. And there's uh, possession shenanigans that's happening all over the place in that episode. And then there's this desert shenanigans that, oh, my goodness, Mark steals the car. And there's some pretty decent stunt work, actually, with the car. And he goes off the road and crashes, but then he just runs into the desert. The spores just make him run into the desert, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, but they, he runs and runs and runs until he can't run anymore because he has to be in water every certain, uh, there's a certain period of time where if he's not in water, he starts suffocating and dying. And it's basically, there's a 24 hour period. He'll die if he goes longer than that 24 hour period, or it might be even be shorter than that. But he starts getting unconscious and getting sick after like four hours. And in the desert, it's even worse. And so then he's running in the desert and then he's got um, his scientist friends who are chasing him in the desert and they finally find him and they realize he needs water. So they run back and get water and then run the water back to him and they come over the dune to give him the water. And <laughs> this is Elizabeth, uh, his friend. She spills the water. And I just I was watching this with my kids. and I just started laughing because it's just, you know, one of those. Uh, I, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, storytelling when, you know, you, you have a good thing happen. They found Mark and they're bringing water to him. But then what's the worst thing that can happen after the good thing happens? So you, after they conquer each little hill, there's another hill beyond that uh, as far as the storytelling goes. And, and then a helicopter comes at the last minute and they take him up in the helicopter and he says, uh, and so she tells the helicopter pilot, you know, find a pool, find a pool. And they come over a pool and then she just pushes the uh, the bed thing that they had him in in the helicopter, she just pushes it into the pool, and and then jumps in after him. And again, practical stunt effects, and it was good. It was I told the kids, I mean that that's real. They just had someone jump off a helicopter into a pool, and uh, it it was it was neat, but it was totally unneeded and just didn't make any sense at all to have this happening why are they running him through the desert when they know he's going to die and he's really the only thing that can help them and then you have this thing where he's running to the, the a rocket that's going to go up it's not the same satellite but it's a different rocket and he he runs through the silo and it's just uh it was fun um now <laughs> it's a special kind of fun though uh, a special kind of fun that's just about perfect for me to feel happy I, I we did it on a fish friday whenever i fry fish for the family uh, I, I always put on something, you know, that I can watch with the kids in the room. And, and this is what I chose for that. <laughs> it was I enjoyed myself as I was frying fish. And then my my kids thought that was kind of funny because I'm frying fish. But I'm watching the show about the the man from Atlantis. So anyway, <laughs> all of that. 
this this issue not bad and actually considering it was 17 pages they cut the right stuff to make it work in that 17 pages instead of trying to squeeze in every single moment like some of the other adaptations when they're actually adapting movies from some sort of licensing deal with a movie company to give the movie in comic book form i think this was just them saying hey let's find one of the episodes that we like let's do it as a comic there's really not a lot of fanfare about it other than that little blurb on the splash page it says freely adapted in our mighty marvel manner from the nbc tv series and then on the letters page and on the letters page they they mention that uh there's the letters page this is the first one so a lot of this is response to that first issue which had a couple different stories in it there's a lot of high praise um there is one person who asks a question about if they will see uh, the Mark Mark Harris with any of the the Marvel characters, and they said we batted it around and no, at the moment we don't think Mark will be co-starring with any of our Marvel characters. What with Submariner, Atuma, Tiger Shark, at all running around, it would detract from his uniqueness, make him just another manfish. But who knows? If you clamor enough for it, we could change our minds. Which I I I like that. I like that. I like that Godzilla takes place in the Marvel Six One Six. A human fly, I don't care anymore. <laughs> There's going to have to be some super, super storytelling that comes up with human fly for me to start caring again. I'm glad Star Wars never was a part of the Marvel 616 universe. But the Conan stuff, that, that kind of makes things a little bit richer. War of the Worlds, it, they did an adaptation of that story, but then they kind of worked the War of the Worlds storyline into... Kill Raven, which is part of Marvel 616, one of the alternate futures, I think. I'm not sure exactly how that all worked out. But as much as, you know, a shared universe is cool and great and awesome, I also like seeing things that just exist in their own universe, you know? Like Man from Atlantis, let it exist in a place where he's the man from Atlantis. He's special. So I, I like that they said that. Uh, there was some complaints about some of the art, though, where he they make him too strong. One of the letter writers called him a pumping iron refugee, uh, referring to Pumping Iron, the, the documentary movie about weightlifters, and I think Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno both were in that. So anyway, all things considered, I enjoy Man from Atlantis as a comic book. It made me go out and get the DVDs. It made me excited about a novel written by the author and... <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I'll try and get an interview with the author, who also is the actor who played Man from Atlantis. Uh, if there was an annual, because you know that's that was kind of my plan, is whenever there's an annual that comes up, it gets a special episode where I try and do something special. I don't know what that special thing would be, but I realize with Godzilla, there's nothing. There, there's no annual with Godzilla. Man from Atlantis, there is no annual of <laughs> Man from Atlantis. I mean, I'm not sure how much longer this comic series is going to last, but I am pretty sure it's not much longer. Uh, although I do wonder, oh, I should look into that. I wonder if they had any inventory stories of Man from Atlantis that they turned around and turned into Submariner stories. Because I know they did that with a Tarzan comic that was an inventory story that they turned around and turned it into a Battlestar Galactica comic. We'll get to that. I don't want to give away too much, but it's very interesting to me how they did that. They did the same thing with Star Wars, with an, actually an issue that I really, really loved as a child. It was part of a three-issue run, and I had these the first two issues of that three-issue run uh, of that Star Wars were a two-parter, and I was so excited because I had the first part and the second part, the whole story. 
the the third issue in that run was part one of another story. What I didn't realize at the time was it actually was a John Carter inventory issue. And they switched out some of the features and the colors of the aliens. And Princess Leia was brought in as, you know, uh, she crash lands on this planet with these all these other aliens. And they added some stormtroopers here and there. But it was a John Carter thing. I wonder if there's a Submariner comic out there somewhere that actually uh, they colored in Mark Harris's yellow trunks and made them green. I don't know. So now uh, some of you are thinking to yourself, I know more about Man from Atlantis than I ever wanted to know or ever intended to know. And that is fine by me if I am reading this for you and you don't need to read it now. But I'm also going to say right now that... Again, if you like this kind of thing, this is a this is a strong, solid, middle-of-the-road 70s superhero comic. And, yeah, I, I don't have much more to say than that. John Carter, Warlord of Mars. This issue, issue number 12 would have been on stands February 21st. Uh, the cover date, of course, is May 1978. And it features a pretty uh, weird story. Uh, and, and I mean, when I say weird, I mean in the sense of like weird fiction, uh, you know, your, your Lovecraft kind of thing, or, or really any kind of uh, old, early horror writer from, you know, the, the early 1900s. Uh, but then the cover itself, though, also, it it reminds me of your swashbuckling Jason and the Argonauts kind of thing, where John Carter, he's in some sort of weird castle type of thing, and he's fighting these skeletons that are rising up around him with swords, and he has his sword, and he's punching the, the skull off of a skeleton that is coming at him. And so there I'm, I'm reminded more of a you know, fantasy adventure uh, with with a mixture of of that weird fiction and the weird fiction horror angle is definitely intended here. Uh, well, we'll get to it here. Let's, let's just start with the story. The story is called City of Skulls and Marv Wolfman is still the writer editor. Carmine Infantino, though, is the penciler. Uh, so that's a, a new penciler. He does not feel like uh, the artwork here does not feel like Carmine Infantino, but we'll get to that when we finish uh, looking at the plot. Uh, the inker, Rudy Nebrez, uh, John Costanza, letterer, and Michelle Wolfman is the colorist here. So the story, it begins with a splash page. John Carter and Deja Thorez are kissing. And John Carter says, I'll miss you. Deja Thorez says, I'll miss you. John Carter says, I'll miss you more. Deja Thoris says, no, I'll miss you more. He says, no, I'll miss you more. And I, I really do kind of get the feeling in this issue. Uh, Marv Wolfman is really pushing the, the love between the two of them. Uh, I mean, really, I shouldn't say just this issue. I mean, issues one through 12 here have been all about their relationship and how everything that John Carter does, he does for Deja Thoris. You know, like the song says, everything I do, 
I do it for you. There's no love. Wait, I, okay. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, cheesy love song aside. I really, I, I feel like just they're they're like teenage lovers. Uh, you know, I almost feel like he should be saying, you know, it's time for me to go. It's time for you to hang up. And she says, no, you hang up. And he says, no, you hang up. I mean, it's just, it, it's not, it's not quite that bad. Uh, but it definitely is a part of their character here is that they are truly, truly in love. And they are parting. One's leaving. You turn the page and you actually realize it's Deja Thoris who is leaving. She has political duties to attend to. She's taking a treaty to uh, a city and accompanying her to that city is Sola, which is Tars Tarkas's daughter. And Sola goes with her to that city and then continues on to go to meet with her father again in her home of Thark, where the Tharks live. And she's worried about going because she didn't want her father to leave Helium. She prefers Helium and her father has chosen to return home because he's been so much spending so much time with John Carter and the Red Martians, but not much time at all with his own people. So she's worried about that. But as she continues on, she hears music, beautiful music, that leads her off the path to this place where bony, dead hands rise up from the barren desert, uh, almost as if to take her and grab her and pull her down. We don't know what's going to happen to her, though. We don't know what they are doing. We don't know where they are taking her. We just know that two weeks later, Deja Thoris re returns home from her, her mission where she was you know, taking the, the treaty or whatever to that city. And not long after, realizes that Sola has not returned and Sola should be back. So it's been you know two and a half weeks that Sola has been missing. And she asks John Carter to go to Thark to see if Sola is still there. Well, when he gets to Thark... Uh, he meets up with Tars Tarkas, who has not seen his daughter and who is very upset because if something has happened to his daughter, he will find out who is responsible and he will exact revenge on them. John Carter, of course, says, while you go look, I'm going to come with you because we are we're buddies. So they go in a flyer and they're flying out and they follow her tracks and the tracks lead them to a sandstorm. Uh, the sandstorm rises up, carries them around. They have no control. And then they end up just flying out of the sky into this place. It's a double-page splash, and it is awesome. It's this fortress temple kind of thing that puts Castle Grayskull to shame. Because, you know, Castle Grayskull has a skull. You know, it's kind of carved into the shape of a skull the drawbridge where its mouth should be and all that kind of thing. But this is two gigantic, enormous skulls. And then around it, you have these other things that are you know, these other skulls that are part of the architecture. And the teeth from the giant, enormous skulls are actually skulls, smaller skulls. And and these smaller skulls are, you know, they they round off the shape into a mouth, and then there's stair steps that that lead uh, up to that that spot on the mouth. There's windows, but then there's also more skulls, and there's just skulls everywhere. And 
I don't think my friend Tim Barron has seen this splash page, but uh, he's drawn some stuff like this. In fact, he drew something like this for uh, for Mamator and the Conquerors of the Cosmos, which I, I worked on with him because uh, he he's an artist that I have uh, done a number of collaborations with. And <laughs> uh, this is totally just like Tim Barron, just there. It's just wonderful as far as the scalliness of it. And there's there's also I mean. The skulls are the things you notice at first, and then you notice there's some walls that aren't skulls, but then you notice there's also just, you know, piles of bones strewn around, and they are crashing toward it. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read the captions on the splash page here that Marv Wolfman wrote, and uh, just to give you some idea, not just of the image, although the image then also in the background is just this kind of purpley red swirl of, of clouds, and actually the colors here. Uh, nice job, Ms. Wolfman. But uh, here's what Marv Wolfman wrote. It rose more than 10,000 feet into the sky, a stark white monstrosity highlighted by the scarlet and purple streaks of night and the reflected glory of Chloros and Thuria. And helpless, we were carried toward the skull-shaped monolith as if the skeletal structure demanded two more dead carcasses to be added to its frightening walls of bone. In the pit of my stomach, I felt sick. For if this thing was some temple of death, then who was its ghastly creator? That right there, that's the, the central question for this story here, this 17-page story. It's, it's basically uh, a chapter one in a new story arc that's going to get us to ask some questions. What is going on here? What is this? It's a mystery. What happened to Tars Tarkas' daughter? And what does this skull-shaped monstrosity have to do with it? Well, they crash, and they pull themselves out from the sand of the desert. And, of course, they go inside. I mean, what else would they do? This is the only structure for, for miles and miles and miles. This is probably where Sola ended up. They go inside, and on the inside, they realize it doesn't just look like bone. It doesn't just look like skulls. It's not just decorated with bone. It's not just decorated with skulls. It is made of bones and skulls. And not only that, they figure out that it's actually newly built. And so they're wondering who did this. I'm wondering who did this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm in on the mystery. I want to know. And my fear, actually, I should save this for the end, but I'm going to go ahead and do it now. My fear is that the answers that we get, are they going to live up to the mystery? I mean, how often does that happen where you have this awesome mystery or you have this awesome setup for some sort of creature or villain, and then you get to the end and you're just, that's it? Oh, okay. But for right now, Mr. Wolfman, you've got my attention and you uh, have you've pulled me in. Uh, this is weird. It's strange. It's horrifying. I mean, it is horrifying if you really think about it. And it's something that we. It actually makes me think of like your H.R. Uh, uh, Giger or Geiger, however you say his name, where you know he would draw these biomechanical monstrosities. And this doesn't quite look like that, but it does have the same kind of a vibe. Uh, just as you're looking, especially this one panel here. There's a skull hanging from a chain, 
but the chain links like actually go right into the the skull, the top of the skull, and there just seems to be this gooey mess on the floor, and and then just again the the architecture is made out of skulls, and then you have Tars Tarkas, who's this battle hardened warrior, and he's just saying, you know, I don't like this. This the aura of this place frightens me. There's tables and chairs made out of bone, and for some reason, they decide to split up uh, because Tars Tarkas is too scared to climb the stairs that John Carter wants to go up. And so he says, fine, you stay down here. I'll search up. And Tars Tarkas is he's why do he's he's doing the shaggy thing? Why? Why did I why did I ever you know split up and go off over here alone? Uh, now, Shaggy at least would have Scooby Doo with him. Uh, Tars Tarkas is all by himself. And as he's walking, a hand reaches up from the earth and the hand is, you know, is followed by a body and the body is kind of the shaggy zombie thing uh, with kind of decaying face. But I don't know how to explain it other than that is it definitely has a human face, but it's, it's decaying, you know, it has the nose cavity and it has the lips peeled back from the, the ragged teeth. And the creature then zaps Tars Tarkas in the back with some sort of eye beams. Meanwhile, as John Carter goes up the, st the stairs made of bones, bones start coming to life around him, and these he's attacked by skeletons. And so the that cover image actually isn't too far away from what we get here. Uh, they have swords on the cover, and here, you know, it's a quick battle where he's punching and smashing skeletons. He's throwing them and smashing them against each other. They don't attack him with swords, but one of them has an axe goes after him with the, the battle axe and they push him up against a wall and, or push him back rather to a wall. And when he's up against the wall, hands start reaching out of the wall hands that of course coming out of a bone wall and they are bony hands and they hold him against the wall and he's stuck. He can't move. He has no leverage. And then he looks up and what does he see? Tars Tarkas with an axe raised and the axe is not raised to help him. Tars Tarkas, John Carter says in the narration, was going to kill me. And then it says, next, March of the Dead. Now, as far as the story is concerned, uh, I'm not concerned about John Carter getting killed. I'm not concerned about Tars Tarkas getting killed. I know they are going to survive. It's the mystery. It's the mystery that's, that's got me pulled in here. I'm not even so much asking myself, okay, how are they going to get out of this? Uh, something's going to happen, so Tars Tarkas will get his faculties back. And something is going to happen where John Carter is going to escape. And something is going to happen where they find out what happened to Sola. That's where my mystery is for me. Where is Sola? What does what happened to her have to do with this mountain of bones that have been, uh, you know, built into the structure that's shaped like uh, skulls, but it's actually like, you know, it's, it's a castle. There's stairs, there's tables and all that kind of thing. So, and wh where did this come from? Who would create something like this? Uh, what is the story that we're getting into here? Uh, this, this issue has me really intrigued. I'm really excited to read more in this. Uh, it's a it's pulpy horror show type stuff. Zombies, skulls, skeletons, mind control uh, over your friend who is coming after you. 
uh, it's great. And then you add to the fact that they, it's not just that there's bones in the corner of a dungeon. It's that, you know, if there's a dungeon in that place, that dungeon is made of bones. There probably will be bones in the corner of the dungeon still, but the corner that it's in, made of bone. The art, on the other hand, it's it's uh, Carmine Infantino, and I like Carmine Infantino. I like his style, but Rudy Nebrez, uh kind of, I think, at least this is the way I think it ended up, is that Ruby uh, Nebrez, he inked it, but he inked it to look more like Gil Kane, you know, inked it to look like, you know, to match up to our previous story arc. And so I'm not sure if it's Ruby Nebras's fault, what I'm going to say here. It might be Carmine Infantino's fault. Uh, the matching of styles doesn't bother me. The style that it's that it ends up being, the style itself doesn't bother me. There are moments that are magnificent in this book and, and freaky and freakish and a little, you know, unsettling and, or just, you know, quite grand and sweeping. But then there are also moments that the artwork is only serviceable. Uh, like when John Carter is being pulled back against the wall and he has these bone hands, you know, the, the staging of that, it just, it's, it's not dynamic. And you'll have you have these kind of couple panels in a row that are just the same image, just a slightly different pose and slightly different angle. And then that final panel where it's just Tars Tarkas walking toward John Carter, uh, there's horror on John Carter's face. And there's anger as if, you know, Tars Tarkas is intending to harm John Carter. That that's evident. The problem is there's just no energy in that uh, and it's just again oddly positioned and it just doesn't feel like it feels like a rush job uh, let's go with that it feels it feels like a rush job and i don't know if it actually was i don't know what other factors are involved here i just there are moments when i really really like the art and there are moments when the art was so <laughs> the art was so not good that it was noticeable I'm not saying it's so bad that it was noticeable, but it was so not great that I, I noticed it. And and that took me out of it, which I, you know, normally great artwork is something that I will really notice. And bad artwork is something that I'll really notice. But this is, you know, one of those times where it's just kind of mediocre artwork and, and it stands out uh, because there is such good artwork in other places. So that's... That's John Carter here, and man, okay, I'm looking at the time code on my recording, and of all the issues that I've read for this series of May 1978 cover date, this is the one I like the most, and it's also the one I'm talking about the least, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this, and uh, Marv Wolfman, again, hats off to you, sir, because you have created a comic that I've really enjoyed and just had a lot of fun with. And there really hasn't been any stinkers in the bunch, even the, those one-offs, you know, with uh, issue 11 and the annual, uh, they may not be my favorite in the series so far, but I still like them. And this is now continuing that same, that same spirit of, of storytelling that I was getting before. So 
I'm, I'm really enjoying this. And this is one of those things, you know, it makes reading Human Fly worthwhile. If I can go from Human Fly to this every every cycle, <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy to do so. So that's all for, for now. Uh, the next segment uh, will be Ben's Bullpen Bulletin, which is where I took a, take a look at the ads and stuff, but I'll also be looking at uh, Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur, which are kind of spinoffs. And uh, I guess one is an actual spinoff, the other is a spiritual spinoff from Jack Kirby's 2001. That'll be the next segment. And until next time, I just have to say, again, thank you for listening. If you are reading John Carter, Warlord of Mars, or have read John Carter, Warlord of Mars, or are thinking about reading John Carter, Warlord of Mars, or maybe you have no interest at all in John Carter, Warlord of Mars, even after hearing what I've had to say about it, I'd love to hear from you and hear about it. We have finished talking about the comics that were... Uh, under this licensed uh, science fiction subcategory that that I've chosen to focus on for this feed. And we are going to be looking at the inside of the book now as far as the ads that were featured, the Marvel's bullpen bulletin that was in there. And we'll also be taking a look at some of the other uh, comics that were coming out that month, especially uh, two that we'll take a close look at, which is Machine Man issue number two and Devil Dinosaur issue number two. Both of them are Jack Kirby books that are related to the uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey series that Jack Kirby did. Uh, Machine Man being a direct sequel spinoff from that book and Devil Dinosaur just kind of picking up on some of those prehistory themes. And maybe I'm, you know, reading more into it than than Jack Kirby intended, but I see it as a spiritual uh, sequel spinoff to the 2001 book. And also it's Jack Kirby, and I want to spend a little more time with the the craziness, the muscular, powerful craziness of some of, of what Kirby was doing with 2001. I really enjoyed that. Uh, you know, some of these books that I'll be looking at, I'm never going to return to. I'm never going to look at again once I finish reading through the run. Um, Human Fly is probably going to fit into that category. But 2001, that is a series that I will I, I will enjoy going back to at some point in time. I don't know when. I don't know why. It'll probably just be when I'm sitting down, bored, need something to do. That might be what I choose to do if it's easily accessible. So to start with, let's take a look here at Mike's Amazing World of Comics, where I can put in the date and see what else was on the on the shelves as we went back in time to February 1978. Does anyone else have any trouble saying February? I always feel like I'm saying it wrong. <clears throat> anyway, February 1978, we had uh, Darth Vader on the cover of the Drive Yourself Crazy Idiot Special. And I haven't had a chance to take a look and see what he actually is doing inside the issue, if he even was in the issue. Uh, what else do we have going on here? We have, uh, man, I, I, I see the Gold Key stuff, and I just, uh, Gold Key just had some fantastic covers. The painted covers, even when, you know, like the Star Trek one where they just don't look right. But they, they just have some fantastic looking covers. But uh, anyway, there, there's not a whole lot 
of of stuff that that I really want to talk about. I mean, there's the, obviously the regular issues, and then there's you know uh, Hanna Barbera's Dynamut that Marvel was publishing, and you know the the Hanna Barbera licensed stuff. I really just didn't want to get into, although I guess strictly speaking, part of the and the, uh, the Man from Atlantis even being a comic is because uh, Hanna-Barbera was working with Marvel on on things like Dino-Mutt and Scooby-Doo and, and f- the Flintstones and all that kind of thing. But the other thing that was I found kind of funny is uh, Gold Key published uh, the, the new Croft Super Show featuring that Bigfoot thing. I mean, I... <laughs> Uh, researching Bigfoot, I see this Bigfoot cartoon, not cartoon, uh, live action Saturday morning show, and then what should what should appear in the the cover gallery from from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, but Cross Super Show with a picture of Bigfoot. And I'm I'm telling you, man, that Bigfoot costume and in those credits when he's jumping around, he looks awesome, just plain awesome. I wish I knew if if they did that because they had seen, uh, you know, the, the Bigfoot character appear on on the Six Million Dollar Man or something like that because it really looks like the that um, Bigfoot and Wild Boy show was basically Six Million Dollar Man type of stories where they're going around and helping people, but then it's just it's Bigfoot and a Tarzan ripoff. So uh, anyway, looking through here, I'm still impressed by. All the Archie books. Archie, uh, this is kind of funny. Yeah, just in this month alone, Archie and Me number one hundred, Archie Annual Digest number thirty-two, Archie Comics Digest number twenty-nine, Archie's Girls Betty and Veronica number two sixty-eight, Archie's Girls Betty's and Ver- Betty and Veronica issue two sixty-nine, Archie's Joke Book Magazine two forty-three, Archie's Joke Book Magazine two forty-four, Archie's Pals and Gals number one twenty-two, Archie's TV Laugh Out number fifty-seven. Good grief. So that's about all I'm going to do with, with Mike's Amazing World here, looking at the the other uh, comics that would have been on the racks at the same time as the ones that we're looking at today. Now I'm going to take a look at what's inside the ads. And we've talked about some of these ads before. Uh, there's inside front cover says, like being bored. And it shows a really bored looking Sue Storm and Captain America standing right next to her yawning. And then it says, don't read this. And that's a thing in Spider-Man looking really excited. And it's for Pizzazz magazine. And I'm just, there's a lot of text in this ad. And I'm just thinking to myself, boy, they're trying to sell this on something that it's not at all going to be a boring experience. But then there's so much text on the page for the ad. The ad itself is a pretty boring experience. Then they have, uh, there's a Slim Jim ad, Satisfy Your Meat Tooth. And it's the one with... uh, with the Wolfman this time, he's he's chewing, he's slamming into a Slim Jim. Uh, the Adventures of Grit Boy, uh, trying to get people to to sell grit, uh, whatever that little grit newspaper or something was. It's a little comic and just kind of this kind of nerdy looking kid trying to sell things and, and winning his, his free prizes. There's an exciting offer for Earthlings. Hey kids, be the first on your planet to join the most exciting fan club in the history of the galaxy. The official Star Wars fan club. Uh, let's see, five five dollar membership fee uh, gets you a heat transfer for a t shirt, embroidered jacket patch, self stick color de- decal, a Star Wars book cover. You remember doing that book covers? Uh, I didn't ever have book covers. I just used uh, paper grocery bags. 
they work nicely. A newsletter, a membership card, an 8x10 color photo, a wallet size photo. A wallet size photo. That's not your membership card either. That's that's a Star Wars picture to put in your wallet. And a 20x28 color poster. Moving on, there is a, you know, you have your flea market pages and... There's another Marvel Collector's Comics. They have even more sets that are available from last time. There's a bodybuilding ad. Always you know, a classic staple. Uh, get Rich and Famous. There's also customizing cars, vans, cycles, buggies, inside and out. More of the uh, flea market stuff. Lots more of the flea market stuff. And... We'll get back to the Twinkie thing here. They have that spy one. I think I talked about this one before where it's uh, Secret Agent Spy Scope. Special price, $3. Enjoy thrilling views up to seven miles away. And the thrilling view that the person who's using it is using it to see is he's standing there while next to a lake is a dude and a lady in their bathing suits with a blanket. And he is about to spy on them. What are they saying you should do with this thing? Then there's Olympic Sales Club Incorporated, which that was one of those that I always used to look at and just kind of be jealous of the prizes you could win, knowing that I never would. Uh, although I think I mentioned this before in one of these, uh, there's a hair dryer in there as one of the things you could win. A cheeseburger radio. And there's, uh, see, Johnny Bench selling baseball bats and, and baseball gloves. So if you move back to the Marvel bullpen bulletin, you see Stan Lee talking about uh, he was lecturing at Virginia Polytech University. And it's kind of an interesting little story. I'm not sure what he means by it, uh, by including it here. But he says, a young professor walked up and asked me why I changed the old soapbox. I didn't know what he meant. I never changed my column, I told him. I've always used it to keep in touch with my bosses, the mighty minions of Marveldom. Well, that professor then uh, goes on to to say that the Stan soapbox used to be a place where he uh, used to be a place where you really leveled with us, where we we'll, we discuss the philosophy of comics, movies, or whatever grabbed us. It was a place to get together, let our hair down, and get to know each other better. But now it's like a TV commercial. You're always selling something. He shook his head and sighed. I miss the old time soapboxes, but I guess they'll never come back. Wow, after he left, I nearly plopped down and thought about what he said. And you know something? He was dead right. I realized I was huckstering our books, TV shows, and assorted products and paraphernalia right here in my column. But where is it written that a fella can't see the light? I promise myself that from now on, the soapbox will be a place where we can yak about anything that comes to mind with emphasis on comics. I'll leave the hard sell to the ad pages where it belongs. So, let me now abjectly apologize to one and all for my excess of exuberance that may have made me pitch too many wares. Starting next ish, we're gonna grab, we're, we're gonna swap stories, gossip, and points of view. And you won't even read, you won't even need your wallet, even if it means less bread for us. At least we'll starve with class. Excelsior, Stan. Then Stanley goes on in the with the item, the news items. Uh, he talks about. In Great Britain, they had some uh, awards ceremony, and Howard the Duck won favorite new comic, favorite humor comic, humor comic, and Steve Gerber and John Buscema uh, won favorite single comic book story uh, with a Howard the Duck story. Conan the Barbarian uh, got favorite comic book character. Savage Sword of Conan was declared favorite dramatic comics magazine. 
Chris Claremont was voted favorite British comics writer for Captain Britain, and X-Men was named best dramatic comic. Beyond that, it's just a lot of things talking about uh, new hires and, and other other comics that they really wanted to promote, like the Spider-Man pocketbook number two and the Marvel Treasury edition spotlighting the Defenders. The Twinkie ad is Thor meets a glutton for gold. And it is a Twinkie ad, but it's... <laughs> uh, gold in Asgard has been less golden of late due to the mysterious disappearances of much of its gold. And uh, Gud Gudrun the Golden is gathering all the gold, but of course Twinkie being that golden sponge cake. He, uh, they use that to defeat him. So... Uh, now to talk about Machine Man, the living robot. Or maybe we should start with Devil Dinosaur. You know, Devil Dinosaur. No, let's let's do Machine Man. Both Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. Uh, it's kind of funny because Machine Man on the cover it says second sensational issue, and then it spoils the big climax in the middle of the magazine. Uh, Devil Dinosaur is second senses shattering issue, and also gives away a. Kind of cool th surprise that, that could have been. It talks about the war with the spider god. So, yeah, you know what? Let's, let's start with Devil Dinosaur. And Devil Dinosaur, the, the story is uh, taking up right from where we left off last time, where Devil Dinosaur with Moonboy on his back is rushing into a, a trap. It's one of those pits with spikes in it that the um, the evil cavemen have, have left for them. And uh, you see that front page, that first page as they're jumping and then you turn to the second page. It is this awesome Jack Kirby double page splash of Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy going over the spikes, maybe onto the spikes. And all of the uh, the other cavemen that are from like the Dark Valley or whatever, they're, they're uh, just looking really menacing, holding their spears. But as you continue with the story, he jumps beyond the spikes and then his tail kind of swipes and destroys them. Meanwhile, the, the leader of them, Seven Scars, orders an avalanche, and Devil Dinosaur is completely covered by rock, and Moonboy is thrown away from Devil Dinosaur. He's separated from Devil Dinosaur and captured, and he's trapped, uh, and he is then placed in kind of like a, actually like in, in a King Kong, where they have two posts, and then they have him tied uh, one arm to each post. And he's being sacrificed to a giant spider god that lives in a cave. And by giant, it, it's enormous. It's, I mean, it's person size. Meanwhile, uh, Dare, uh, Daredevil, I wrote DD in my notes. It's Devil Dinosaur, not Daredevil. Uh, an Iguanodon attacks Devil Dinosaur, but Devil Dinosaur just tries harder, as we've talked about before. Pushes himself out of the rocks, bursts forth, fights, destroys that Iguanodon. And then goes to save moon boy and he gets a torch uh from uh, the the fire forest and he comes and starts sets this ring of fire around them this is a tyrannosaurus uh, rex that is walking around with a torch uh with fire uh bursting from the edge of it in his mouth and he sets this this fire around everyone and then surrounded by fire uh he uh, he's in there with, with these guys and he crushes uh, seven scars and then uh, gets Moonboy, jumps over the fire. The fire is closing in on all the cavemen and they have nowhere to go other than the cave that contains that giant 
spider god. Now, we don't see a uh, final battle between Devil Dinosaur and the spider. That's what I expected. Uh, instead, he just uses fire as a weapon and traps them all in there with the spider. And then <laughs> you see uh, sound effects of all of their screams as they die. And then in the final panel of the issue, we see a face of someone who is watching them, has his eye on them. Every legend has its roots somewhere in the dim past. This is the next issue blurb. Before Samson, Hercules, and Mighty Thor, there must have been the giant, which you can assume that that person who's watching them go away in victory is the giant. So, I, I, you know, this is one, it's, it's very simplistic, but it's the artwork that really gets me on, on this devil dinosaur stuff. The simplicity of the stories, the simplicity of just, you know, trying to survive and what, you know, doing what it takes, the ridiculousness of the giant dinosaur with a torch in his mouth. You know, I, I can look past all of that because it's the story doesn't matter as much to me. The story is the means of getting the artwork to me. The story is the fork that gets the spaghetti to my mouth. The spaghetti is the artwork and it is wonderful, wonderful to behold. In the Dinosaur Dispatches, uh, there is this lengthy writing by Jack Kirby again. And he's just talking about how there were giants in those days. There were also smaller animals. And you know, it basically says, write to me. Gives his Thousand Oaks, California address where you can get <laughs> send your letter directly to him. So that's Devil Dinosaur. Machine Man is also it's a pretty quick read. I mean, all of these things that we've been reading this month, they're all 17 pages for 35 cents. And Machine Man, uh, the story is is actually called House of Nightmares. Um, he doesn't end up in a house, but there are nightmares that are happening. And uh, it starts out, he's dreaming. He, he has, if you remember last issue, he was being chased by the military and his legs were damaged. And so he had to you know, pop out the taint treads in his arms to pull himself away from them. Well, now he's unconscious. He dreams that his face is being removed. The military are following him. His legs are out of commission, so he walks very slowly to a garage where he buys uh, tires from the owners. And the way he pays for them is by taking rocks and squeezing them and heating them and cooling them, turning them into diamonds. Meanwhile, Dr. Spaulding, the psychologist who gave him a ride in the first issue, is uh, with a patient, but then they come, uh, they interrupt that meeting and say that patient zero is talking again. So he runs in. He leaves his patient behind and runs to patient zero, who's shouting this science lingo gibberish type of stuff. Cut back to Machine Man and the military has found him. But he bursts out of the garage where he has turned himself into a tricycle. Uh, this is actually it's kind of cool. A little bit. Uh, he has a rod that goes through his ankles and has the front two wheels. And then he has a rod that kind of comes out his backside with the back wheel. And then he has these, these handlebars that, that come up that he's holding on to. But he's turned himself 
into a vehicle. And if it wasn't on the cover, it would have a really, really cool uh, reveal of what he was doing in, in that garage. But it was on the cover. It was already spoiled. Uh, he escapes, though. And he goes to Dr. Spaulding and says, you said you'd take me in. And Dr. Spaulding says, sure. Uh, you can have a place to stay. But then their conversation gets interrupted. So apparently Dr. Spaulding just has lots of interruptions, but their conversation gets interrupted by an interstellar transmission. And it turns out the crazy man who's been shouting this scientific gibberish, he's actually getting messages from space about a spaceship that is falling into the sun. The crazy guy is not crazy at all. So... The, this again, this is Jack Kirby, his pseudo science fiction stuff that he's doing. And it's really, you know, if if Devil Dinosaur for me is all about the art, Machine Man for me is all about the concept uh, that and how Jack Kirby is going to play with the concept. Um, the, the idea that Machine Man can dream. He doesn't know how he doesn't know why. Uh, he shouldn't be able to, but he has very sophisticated circuitry. And so he does. He dreams. And he's, I mean, it's his his cybernetic brain cycling through these things that he's afraid of. What is he afraid of? He's afraid of losing his identity. And, you know, the, the scene, I don't know if Jack Kirby intended what I'm about to say, but it fits whether he intended to or not. These rocks that are being turned into diamonds, that's him. You know, he's something that was rough and raw and undefined, and then he has become a diamond. He has, he has gained an identity, and he is someone now. He is somebody. So the final page, uh, page 31 of the book, but you know, really page 17 of the story, we find out that, um, you know, in room zero with patient zero, He's yelling because they finally figured out what it is. And, you know, the, the ship that's in the sun, there's lots of Kirby crackle. It's kind of cool. You don't know exactly what's going on. But he starts screaming, at last, you finally understand. I must be taken from this doomed vessel. He's speaking for the alien. And he says, it can be done only one way. I'll show you, you how to bring me to your world. And then the final panel there says, so stand by for the super villain of the century. 10-4, the mean machine. I have no idea what this means. So is the alien, is 10-4, the supervillain of the century, is he on that ship? 10-4, spelled T-E-N-F-O-R, not 10-4, good buddy, but 10-4, good pun on something. I don't know. The mean machine. So we have machine man, and then we have this mean machine. But... um. The, the thing I'm going to leave you with, though, here is just to kind of get back into that that Kirby mode. And I didn't want to read the Devil Dinosaur writing that, that Kirby did. But this machine mail one that he did, I, I, I don't know. There's just something about when Jack Kirby sits down to write an essay about these, these sci-fi ideas. Title is A Persecuted Machine. It's not an odd notion. You've seen the dramatic situation arising from the background of our sterling principal character. His existence is not only in the hands of man, but is also threatened by its very creators. Science, like Pandora's box, has released a marvel too hot to handle. What's more, 
The chief advocate of Machine Man's extinction is a vengeful and determined Javert, who, who will track his prey to the ends of the earth. That's only for openers. There's also the question of we the people, the human swarm in which the new fish must swim. Are we friend or foe? Will we help Machine Man or turn him in? We're not angels, you know, and we're not devils either. Individually, we may react differently to a foreign object in our midst. But in the last analysis, when we realize the potential and power of this newcomer, we may well give in to our fears and join the howling pack in an attempt to reduce him to harmless hardware. There isn't a computer anywhere that will cause uneasiness among the people who program it. But show me one that walks and talks and protests for evil, equal rights, and I'll show you one frightened artist writer. What is the right and wrong of this premise? Where does the good and evil lie? If machine man exhibits humanity, isn't it incumbent upon us to extend our own to him? Not necessarily so. Humanity is a structure of wide range, and compassion is not the only item in the package. To be human is to be many things. Hitler as well as Gandhi. Mobster as well as judge. Ignorant as well as learned. We're all a kaleidoscope of conditioning and emotions both volatile and placid. We've burned witches in the past as well as in the present. So why should we stop with machine man? Our past performances demonstrate our eagerness to rid ourselves of what we consider an impending threat. Machine man's pursuit of a place among humans is like building a house on an iceberg at the equator. Let's face it, we've always been constant trouble to ourselves as well as others. Humans are going to give machine man a hard time of it. We're going to make him jump from one frying pan into another fire. But the intriguing part of the entire premise is that is what he will do when his back is finally against the wall and decides to strike back. Now that's the facet of the machine man story worth following. When he gets his dander up and activates his weapon systems, why, that's when the lid may blow and singe our backsides. Machine Man is worth watching and reading. He's a tin man with all of humanity on his back. If you've got your own views on this situation, feel free to write. The address is Jack Kirby, Thousand Oaks, California. <laughs> I, I don't know who he was writing that for. I don't know if that's like part of his initial pitch or something. I mean, he's basically explaining what he's trying to do, and that's... I mean, that's pretty clear, but I don't know who he's explaining it for, if it was intended for the readers, because basically he's trying to say, you just read something worth reading. I'm going to sell you on it after you're done with it, basically. So I think the last thing I really have to say about uh, Machine Man and really about our coverage of May 1978 is that I was in the toy aisle right after Christmas, and you know what I saw? A Machine Man toy, part of the Marvel Legends line. I came very close to buying it. Very, very close. Uh, man, I mean, I like getting, you know, trinkets of things that I'm into. And uh, Machine Man is definitely something I'm feeling into right now. I, I didn't get it, though. I, I left it on the shelf and, and I kind of regret it a little bit. But, you know, Marvel Legends, they're expensive toys. And so I chose I chose to leave that one on the shelf. I, I, would, I don't know what I would do with it anyway. Um, I guess I do have a place I could put it eventually, but I, I'm not planning on buying it anytime soon. But that ends the coverage of May 1978 cover date. 
And next episode actually is going to be something a little bit different. I'm going to look at the three hardcover releases of the Star Wars movie adaptations. I'm actually going to start uh, in, in both feeds for this, the, the Comic Book Time Machine, where the longer episodes gets placed, and the Marvel Cosmic Comics feed, where the shorter episodes get placed. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start covering modern Marvel Star Wars books. I'm not going to cover anything else, really, as far as modern comics in this particular series, I guess. But I, I am going to start covering the new stuff. And so I'm, I'm actually, to start the new stuff, I'm, I'm actually starting with something that's old, the three mo movie adaptations that Marvel did with that original license. And then moving into some of the new stuff that ties into uh, the, the new continuity and the new canon with, uh, say, you know, things like Shattered Empire and, and Princess Leia. And I'll be covering those as graphic novels come out. And so I do have some catch-up that I do need to play but not not a lot, and I'll have some time, and I might try to do something different. I don't know if I'll bring in or try and bring in a, a co-host or or what, uh, but just to make it a little bit different, a little bit special. But I, you know, th this feed, I, I, I do want to cover as much Star Wars as I can, and I'm telling you, you know, Star Wars: The Force Awakens, it got me excited about Star Wars. I, I'm even more excited, I should say, about Star Wars. I already was excited. I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing here with these old comics, but that movie, it got me excited. So. That's all I have to say, really, and I want to thank you for listening. And uh, after that special episode, we'll we'll jump into the the next round of of uh, the Marvel licensed sci-fi books from the '70s. So, thank you for listening, everyone. And as you're out there flying among the stars or uh, trying to find your place in this world as some sort of machine being, or riding your red giant dinosaur, wherever you are, wherever you're going, Godspeed. <laughs>